And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, wherever you are on this rotating planetary sphere, which tonight is really going to feel like a planet. We're taking a journey back in time to the golden age of UFOs, and I've got an incredible guy to talk to about it, Gordon Lohr. Um, I'm intrigued with that little quinky dinky, as a friend of ours used to say. Lore is going to tell us an extraordinary tale. Lore, get it? Tale, lore, story? Anyway, before we get to Gordon, let me hit a couple of news things. First of all, we are not going to talk about Judge Kavanaugh tonight. Nope, sorry guys. Uh, you can send all the email you want. I've had tons of... No, we're not going to talk about Judge Kavanaugh. We're going to talk about him tomorrow night, but not directly about Judge Kavanaugh. We're going to talk about him and this whole thing that's been going on in Washington for the last several weeks around his nomination um, in a very different light, something that's totally out of the, I can't really say that, can I? Your left field, right field, we'll keep it you know, straight down the middle. Believe me, it's part of a larger discussion we're going to have tomorrow night with James DeMeo and something called Sahara Asia a research project he has been conducting for the last uh, 30-some years. So tune in tomorrow night to hear how, in fact, the Kavanaugh appointment to the Supreme Court as an associate justice is incredibly interestingly relevant from the other side of Midnight Perspective to what Dr. DeMeo is going to talk about tomorrow night, Sahara Asia. Make a note of that tomorrow night. You want to be here. I guarantee you it's going to be riveting and something you have never, ever, ever heard before. Perspective that's so unusual. You're going to want to go to his page. Maybe go to the other side of midnight.com now. Click on the banner for Sahara Asia and kind of take a look at what uh, he's going to be talking about. Because I guarantee you, you will not have heard this anywhere else. Guarantee you. Returning to tonight, um, the first item, if you go to the other side of midnight.com and you click on the graphic for tonight, that gorgeous graphic that can be prepared, the flying saucer in front of the Capitol, and my guest, Gordon, Gordon Lohr, click on that, takes you to his guest page tonight, scroll down under radio pictures to my items. First of all, item number one, the Russian Space Agency, as you know, has been conducting an um, investigation into the bizarre holes drilled into the uh, Soyuz spacecraft attached to the International Space Station. And their conclusion, uh, as of a couple days ago, is that it was deliberate sabotage. Somebody took a drill and drilled holes in their spacecraft. And they're now coming down on the side that it's basically, it was done on the ground was not done in orbit by any of the crew. I mean, that would be nuts. I mean, well, we're living in an age of nuts, but that would be super nuts. No, it was done on the ground. Now, they're also saying that it was not a manufacturing defect, but it was deliberately done by somebody who obviously, if you can look at that photo, uh, the drill skipped a couple, three times before it kind of dug in, meaning it was an amateur who didn't know how to use a Black & Decker. Do the Russians buy Black & Decker? They used to buy Kodak film years ago. I was stunned back then to find that when they looped their spacecraft around the moon, there was Kodak film in the cameras. I mean, why not? Anyway, um, now what's really interesting is a kind of a um, uh, appendage to this story 
is that right after the Russians came out and said this was sabotage, NASA came out and said, wait a minute, not so fast. So there's a disagreement between NASA and the Russian, you know, Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, which I presume will be resolved sometime in the next several weeks or months, because what they're now planning to do is to do a spacewalk outside the uh, space station, outside of ISIS, outside of the Soyuz, in November, I think right after our election, after the midterms. Why are they waiting for the midterms? That's curious. And they're going to be looking to see if they can see anything on the outside, if there are holes going from the inside to the outside. I mean, this is really kind of peculiar. And we discussed some of the politics around it when we brought this up a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to wait for more information. But the fact that the Russians say it's sabotage and NASA says, no, it's not, I find very interesting. So um, we'll just have to see how that plays out. Item number two, uh, Musk, SpaceX, announced with great fanfare that its first mission to the space station in the Dragon spacecraft, remember that's the name that Musk picked for his manned or human personnel spacecraft, the Dragon, um, is not going to take place now until June of 2019. Does anybody remember what I said when he was talking about sending two astronauts around the moon, two civilians on the Falcon Heavy in 2018. I said it was going to be, you know, postponed probably till June of 2019. And then he kind of uh, uh, made a, made a sudden change and said, uh, no, we're not going to use the Falcon Heavy. We're going to wait for the big, you know, Falcon rocket, which will delay it probably till 2022, 2023. But I said at the time that he was going to do that first round, the mission with the civilians in 2019, not 2018, which was the announcement, because 2019, June of 2019, will be 19.5. See, get it, get it. So instead of going around the moon, the first SpaceX mission to ferry astronauts to and from the International Space Station will be in June of 2019, according to this schedule which is 19.5. Moving on. Item number three is really peculiar because ever since there's been this real push to go to Mars, ever since that there seems to be a a real dynamic to get off our you-know-whats and get out into space and go to Mars, from time to time there appear these kind of show-stopping papers or stories or editorial saying, They're all going to die if they go to Mars. Well, the latest one, which is item number three, Georgetown University Medical Center apparently has done a study showing that astronauts will basically die of cancer in their gut if they go to Mars without radiation shielding. Now, is this really new news or is this old news? I don't know. So it's item number three, deep space travel could destroy astronauts' guts Take it with a grain of salt, very large grain of salt, because, again, for every positive story that we're going to really get off this this little bergy bit, get into space and do something interesting, there appears to be a counterforce story which says, no, you're all going to die out there. you got to stay home. Don't you dare go there. Because, of course, it's what's out there, which leads us to story number four. Story number four is very interesting. 
this came out, you know, in, in the last uh, uh, few weeks uh, after the Cassini mission about a year ago was deliberately um, put into the atmosphere of Saturn to prevent it from either crashing into Enceladus or hitting the rings or whatever. So they didn't want biological contamination, particularly for Enceladus or Titan. So they deep-sixed it into the atmosphere about a year ago uh, this month. In the meantime, they've been looking at all this incredible data. Now, you know the last year of the mission, or the last several months, the Cassini spacecraft was literally uh, going through extraordinary uh, um, perturbations in diving between the planet and the rings, like in that couple thousand mile wide gap between what's called the D-ring and the upper atmosphere of Saturn. And they made 22 close orbits with all instruments acquiring all kinds of data. They would scream around the planet and then dash back out into space. And then they would turn the spacecraft around and they would send the data back on the high gain antenna. And they've been now looking at this data for some time. Well, story number three actually impinges on a presentation I did in Leeds, England, many years ago. I'm trying to remember whether it was a 2009 or 2011. It might have been 2011. Anyway, I gave a, a speech in, in Leeds with um, you know, full court press and lots and lots of graphics and images and all that. And I've never done it here. I've never done it domestically because I wanted to kind of test and see who was paying attention. And some people have. They've asked me from time to time, when are you going to do an updated version for your American audience? What I discussed and laid out, an astonishing hypothesis based, again, on some really amazing Cassini imaging that uh, showed what apparently is an artificial set of constructs, which frankly look like tall, towering glass skyscrapers, miles high, located in the rings of Saturn. Now, I know that sounds wild and kooky and crazy and all that, and you won't be able to check me on this unless you go to the raw data file and start looking for yourselves. But in the coming um, uh, weeks and months, I'm going to update our Cassini Saturn, um, you know, uh, Moon with a View series that we stopped updating many years ago because I was kind of waiting for Cassini to take data and send it home, and I didn't want NASA to kind of get upset and say we were anticipating or not take data because we were looking or whatever. So I kind of pretended we had forgotten about Saturn. Deliberate political move. They've now come out with this remarkable, incredible story because in addition to measuring radiation fields and magnetic fields and the concentration of dust and the vestiges of the upper Saturnian atmosphere in those 22 close passes, they also were measuring something they called ring rain, apparently material from the D-ring, the innermost ring of Saturn, is all the time being slowed down by, among other things, atmospheric um, uh, uh, perturbations, atmospheric drag. And like any re-entering satellite in Earth orbit, eventually they all come back in. This stuff is literally raining down on Saturn in about an eight-degree wide band straddling the equator. It's not symmetric. It's kind of shifted north because of the magnetic field of Saturn, apparently. But anyway, they're calling it ring rain, and it amounts to something like 
10 tons per second of material is re-entering or entering, can't re-enter if you haven't ever left the planet. So it's entering the atmosphere under the shadow of the rings, under the central ring plane, 10 tons per second. Now, with a planet as big as Jupiter, 75, or not Jupiter, Saturn, 75,000 miles across, you know, 10 tons doesn't sound like a lot, but that's every second. So you multiply that by 60. That's, you know, 600 tons per minute times 24. How many thousands of tons in a 24-hour? In other words, the rings are losing mass into Saturn. And the D-ring should be depleted. I haven't seen numbers yet on the depletion rate, but I'm sure that NASA's got those numbers somewhere. They just haven't kind of published them yet. But what this means is that the rings cannot be eternal. They can't be billions and billions of years old. Thank you, Carl. They have to be much more limited in time. In fact, I saw one number based on another study. The rings of Saturn could be as little as 300,000 years old. Babies in a solar system billions of years old for the rings to only be 300,000 is, is astonishing. I mean, it's crazy. It means something bizarre and catastrophic happened in the close vicinity of Saturn and the rings were the result. Well, here's another data point to filter into what I said to my audience in Leeds and what NASA is not saying, but is certainly providing appropriate background to allow you to reach your conclusion because it discovered as part of the ring rain with the analysis instrumentation on the Cassini spacecraft, which included plasma measurements and actual dust measurements. When little dust grains were collected in this instrument called the dust collector, <laughs> very logical, they can do an analysis of the chemical composition of the dust grains. And what they found in addition to what they expected to find, which was lots of water, and ice and hydrogen and stuff like they found all kinds of organic compounds, including methane, which should have long since evaporated from the rings if it was ever there in the first place, which the models say shouldn't be there. So what's going on? Well, NASA doesn't say, but I'm going to plant a, a thought tonight. Is it possible that what we're seeing is the organic debris, the detritus, the resulting byproducts of the decomposition of biological systems that once were established in the rings and are now degrading, and Cassini was seeing the effluents, the organic detritus, the organic waste products, the, the biological endpoint of decomposition of those former ancient cities. In the rings. One more data point and then we'll move on. They were able to calculate based on the trajectory of Cassini and the motion of the ring particles themselves that this increase and decrease in these organic products occurred on the same cycle and the same time frame that several bright of ring material that were unresolved in the Cassini cameras because they you know, we're so far away and the Cassini cameras only have so much resolution, that kind of thing. These concentrations of material in the rings that normally look kind of uniform, these clumps appeared time to coincide with the increases 
inorganic material in the ring rain. I mean, this is just wild, wild stuff. Is it possible we're looking at the literal decaying products, again, of an ancient type 2 solar system civilization, which was here before us? Stay tuned. Finally, item number five. In the last uh, 12 months or so, from December of last year, December of um, – actually, it's not 12 months. It's just you know, shy of maybe 10 months. Um, there was a major story, two major stories in the New York Times relating to secret government activities a la the Pentagon looking into UFOs. Well, those secret activities came to light and were published. There's a story here, um, which is number five equating the resurgence of UFO stories in 2017 and by autonomy 2018 to, to reflecting growing American anxieties. I mean, isn't that like mainstream writers? You see an uptick in UFO stories and suddenly everybody's afraid. Reminds me of that very interesting classic 1950s film where they ended it by saying, keep watching the skies, keep watching the skies. Anyway, that kind of leads directly into what we're going to talk about tonight with my guest, so let me introduce him without further notice. Gordon Lohr began his professional writing editing career as vice president, assistant director, and secretary treasury of the newfound National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, NICAP. doesn't exist anymore, but it, in its heyday, it was the world's largest UFO organization headed by the late Major Donald E. Kehoe. U.S. Marine Corps retired. In the mid-1960s, Gordon was responsible for heading a large scientific network of subcommittees, which lent his expertise toward solving one of the primary mysteries of the 20th century and beyond. Gordon played a prominent role in the first-ever congressional day-long hearings on UFOs in September of 1968, working closely with the late Dr. James E. McDonald, J. Allen Hynek, and many others to bring the subject of UFOs to the scientific community and the general public and the political leadership in Washington, D.C. Lohr was an uncredited science advisor to the late director Stanley Kubrick on his seminal science fiction film, 2001, Space Odyssey, in 1967. Well, we got to ask him about that. He is the senior author of Mysteries of the Skies, UFOs, and Perspective, Prentice Hall, the first ever book based entirely on the early history of UFOs, and the sole author of Strange Effects from UFOs, NICAP. He also edited UFOs, A New Look, The UFO Investigator, and The UFO Research Newsletter. Gordon has written and edited hundreds of published articles on the most mysterious scientific puzzles of all time. I would agree with that. His latest book, The Early Family of Newfoundland, I'm sorry, yeah, The Earl Family of Newfoundland, and The Birth of a Canadian Atlantic Providence is now available as a Nook book on the Barnes & Noble website. Well, we can go into to, to Gordon directly. You can read the rest of his bio. So without further ado, let me bring on Gordon Lohr. Gordon, are you there? Uh, I'm here. Could I make a little correction? Sure. The, uh, the book that's on the Barnes & Noble website is the uh, Priest of Kali, about the Hindu mystic Ramakrishna. And the uh, Earl family book can be... Uh, gotten through DRC Publishing in St. John's, Newfoundland. Okay. Well, we can make a correction and post that on the website as the evening progresses or for the archive. 
I want to jump. I want to jump. I mean, this is an incredible trip down uh, memory lane for me because if you go back to radio with pictures, are you on the website, Gordon? Uh, no. I, 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 oh boy. Yeah. See, I only have one hand here, and it's hard for me. To... Oh, because you're holding the phone. Yes. Yes. We we could not I'm make a Skype connection, phone, yeah. so you're on on the phone. Well, I tell you what. During the break, what you might want to do when we reach the bottom of the hour, you might want to put the phone mm-hmm. down. And then get on the computer because there's a very interesting image of me back in 1964 sitting with Thornton Page, David Morgan, John Fuller, and James McDonald, a very not drive-behind-the-ears guy sitting on a couch at George and Margot Early home in January of 1968. I'll be darned. I remember George Early well, yeah. Yeah, uh, he was one of my best friends. He's he's in fact the guy who introduced me to NICAP. So let's time machine and go way back in time and talk about a young Gordon Lore. When did you first look up and realize there's something out there that I don't understand? Well, actually, uh, um, I had three sightings actually, and the first was in um, the summer of 1955. And I was sitting on um, the half-mile-long Chesapeake Biological Laboratory Pier where the Patuxent River meets the Chesapeake Bay in Solomon's Island, uh, which is where I was brought up, when I saw a large light heading toward me coming from the mouth of the Chesapeake across the Patuxent River. And then I saw an outline of a large dish-shaped object which suddenly dove into the water then rose back into the sky and headed straight for me. As it flew over me, I saw a bottom panel open, and the UFO sprayed me with what I called at the time a Patuxent shower. Then it rose straight up and disappeared, and that thing really scared the hell out of me. Now, right across the the river was the Patuxent Naval Air Station, where a lot of astronauts to this day still train. And uh, I called them, and they said they had nothing... uh, up that would resemble anything like that. And then there was a second sighting which occurred on April 2nd, 58, and I was returning home from Baltimore where I had a, where I was a student at the Peabody Conservatory of Music when I saw a large white light hovering over a barn. Then a few minutes later it began blinking on and off and it followed my car for most of the uh, remaining miles to uh, Solomon's Island. Then it stopped and hovered over another barn. Then a minute or so later, it started to perform some fantastic maneuvers. In an instant, it would appear at one end of the sky. Then a split second later, it would reappear at the other end of the sky. So wait, wait, wait. Wait, wait, wait. Hang on, hang on, hang on. You say reappear. Did, mm-hmm. did you not see it move from one position, or did it disappear in one place and then reappear in another part of the sky? That was pretty much it. it. It just reappeared so fast, my eyes couldn't follow it. And it did, did this for half a dozen or so times. Then it stopped, and suddenly I saw a brilliant, large red light that came out of the sky and merged with the larger light. At this point, my car radio began a loud screeching sound, and as I approached the Patuxent River, the light crossed the river, headed south, and disappeared, and then uh, nearly seven months later, on November 20, 1958, I was standing outside my father's oyster house 
at about 5 o'clock p.m. when I saw a red streak of light hanging over the river. And there were about uh, 15 or so other workers with me. Then we saw three large, slender, cigar-shaped objects that were moving slowly over the river and then uh, on the opposite side. Then a fourth, much larger object appeared seemingly out of nowhere that dwarfed the other three UFOs. As, as we all watched, the large object began expanding from both sides at once. Then it quickly rose up into the sky at an estimated 20,000 or so feet. Then it changed to a silvery disk and disappeared at a tremendous speed. And then the other objects followed suit. And I sent all three of these reports to NICAP. And, uh, I became very interested in that. And of course, uh, when I met Dick Cole at a, at, at a, uh, at a folk song coffee house where I performed, he hired me uh, at, uh, on the staff at NICAP in, uh, I think it was April 1965. Hmm. So, so Gordon, we only have about five minutes to the bottom of the hour. I want you to give uh-huh. people, millennials and people who don't remember anything beyond, you know, three days ago with this rush of information we're drowning in, give them from now to the bottom of the hour, kind of a feeling for the times. How were UFOs treated in the media, in newspapers, on television in this period? How did this thing called NICAP, how did it come about? Well, NICAP was formed in uh, 1956 as an organization that Major Donald Kehoe and Townsend Brown co-founded it. Townsend Brown was the first director for about a year, and then his uh, business acumen uh, made the organization start to go downhill when Kehoe took it over on January 1st, 1957, and built it up then, and it lasted another 12 years until um, it began to go under again. And, of course, that was when Kehoe and I were fired back in late December of 1969. Hmm. And uh, I think it was a CIA takeover because he had to, I know a CIA plant was on our staff, and it was partly Kehoe's thing because uh, the chairman of the, the first chairman of the NICAP Board of Governors was Admiral Roscoe Hillencoiter, who was the first director of the CIA. <laughs> you can't get a more direct others. link than that. I know, and he and and uh, Joseph Bryan, uh, Colonel Joseph Bryan, was the uh, chairman of the NICAP Board of Governors uh, in, in the late 60s. Uh, he was uh, at CIA Connections, and there was a uh, person that was on our staff that had CIA Connections as well. So I think it was a it was a coordinated effort to uh, finally take the organization over, and they did. Why they lasted, took so long to do it, I don't know. But, hmm. Maybe it's a measure. In there as well, you know, during the uh, uh, 66-67. I was going to say, wasn't that 66? Yeah. Right. And we were very involved with that. We gave them most of the information that we had in our files that uh, uh, consisting of of good reports. And um, we we first of all thought they were committed to doing a good job and then found out that just wasn't the case. And uh, uh, so after the Condon report came out in January 1969, NICAP sort of went under um, then. 
started going under then. So, Well, if the Air Force comes out and basically said there's nothing to see here, folks, there's no national security issues and, you know, move along, nothing to see, Yeah. a civilian yeah. organization devoted to a phenomenon that the government says doesn't exist, you know, most people at that time took the word of the government. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's Tell you true. what, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. Um, I'm going to mute Skype so you can go and try to get on the computer so you have it in front of you. We'll be back with my guest this morning, Gordon Lore. And in honor of tonight, I've picked some very interesting bumper music. Let's see if you can remember this from the period of the 1950s. other side of midnight be sure to catch our complete live show every saturday and sunday night at 9 p.m pacific midnight eastern for a full three hours of this kind of exploration and be sure to visit the other side of midnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special radio with pictures guest page simultaneously the Kinsia, our hard-working producer specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show why because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio Pictures feature, please visit theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling 
the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the Open Hailing Frequencies Room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our Club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Kinthea posts for each show. Okay, here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported in my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials to a minimum. If you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night. My guest this morning, Gordon Lore, veteran of the UFO years when it all began, the golden age. You know, Gordon, I want you to really take people who have no idea what happened in those years back to where the UFO thing in 1947 kind of burst on the American scene and the effects it had on people, including you as a young kid growing up, to where when you saw your first event, your first saucer, what it, what it did to you inside? Because it must have been kind of like, oh, my God, it's one of them. Yeah, right. Well, I, I first read the first two books. I was still, uh, oh, I don't know, about 20 then or something like that. But uh, um, I, actually, I was younger than that, maybe about 17, when I read uh, Major Kehoe's, Donald Kehoe's first two books, Flying Saucers um, from Outer Space in 1950, and then Flying Saucers from Beyond the Earth, I think it was, um, in 1953, and uh, I was hooked when I read those books. Then I had my first sighting in 55, which I explained earlier on, and uh, I was sort of hooked on the subject, so I started a library of UFO books and reading, and finally uh, had the three sightings, and I mailed them into uh, NICAP, and uh, when I first started at NICAP, uh, 
I was actually a folk singer at a uh, the Unicorn Coffee House in Washington, D.C. Oh, my God. In uh, 1965. And they called the assistant director of NICAP, happened to come in there and heard me sing a folk song to a poem. I set, uh, I set the music to a poem of um, the Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes called The Pedigreed Piddling Pup and Ten Piddles in a Puddle. Oh, my God. And uh, he was... He was impressed by that. He invited me back to his apartment and uh, had a few friends there. And by the end of that evening, I was hired for an ICAP and started there almost the next day. And how old were you? I was there five years. Oh, this was in uh, 65, so I was uh, 29 then. Oh, my. Gosh. Yeah. So yeah. what did that feel like? I mean, growing up, you're watching all these things. How do the papers let – me, let me start with this question – how did the newspapers, because it was basically newspapers in those days, not really television, although television mm-hmm. came in later, how did they deal with the whole subject? Well, actually, they, uh, uh, it's, yeah, as you say, there was no internet, no email, that kind of stuff. Uh, so there was a lot of newspaper coverage, much more so then is, than now, I think. Uh, because there were flaps uh, all over the uh When you say world. flap, you mean like a sudden burst of sightings? Sudden burst of sightings that last for a determinate period of time. I remember doing the 66 and 67 flaps around the world. I was up till like 2 o'clock in the morning at NICAP headquarters fielding calls from as far as Wales, Alaska, and uh, Germany and places like that from Washington, D.C., and the mailman would bring in two huge sacks of letters every day from people wanting to know uh, more about these UFOs around the world. And really the period between, uh, I guess, 1952 right up to 1957 on up to the time of um, the Socorro, Mexico case and then, the, uh, of course, the Roswell case in July of 1947. Um, and, and and the newspapers did a tremendous job of um, reporting the news. And uh, God, you mean real journalism? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. A lot of it, a lot of it was real journalism. Uh, some of it wasn't, of course. But <laughs> uh, and uh, so we were we were really busy during those formative years in the '60s, particularly. Okay, let me take you back a few years before you joined NICAP to 1952, the summer of 1952. I think you know where I'm going with this, right? You were living. uh, You were living uh, in. You were you were in suburban Maryland, down on the on the shore, on the river, on the Chesapeake. That's right. Matter of fact, I'm looking at the at the disc uh, circling the the uh, Capitol Dome here. Uh, from your flying saucer from beyond the earth mm-hmm. illustration on your website here. And of course that was the, uh, when a bunch of discs actually came over and hovered over the white house in the Capitol in July, 1952. Tell people about that because apparently it was not just one event. It went on for weeks and even truly yeah, got it involved it went on for a long time. And, uh, it's not something I cover too much in my book because I, I mentioned it, but, uh, I just wasn't involved in it at the time. My book mainly covers the years I was actually involved in it from 1965 to 1980. 
but there was a just a tremendous amount of hundreds of sightings and uh, and they really resembled flying discs and then uh, the lights in the sky that did dance dances over the Capitol building and the White House and uh, it was widely covered in the newspapers and magazines and radio at the time so politically um, I understand eventually the president got involved. Truman actually made some statements. Looked at from the outside before you were involved on, on the inner, you know, circles of this investigation. How did the press treat the fact that UFOs kept appearing over the nation's capital in all hours of the day and night? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought they treated it fairly well and fairly accurately. Uh, it was just one newspaper article after another, and it went on for some months there in 1952. And, uh, you know, there, there was just hundreds, thousands of newspaper reports about it. The less typical of what is called a flap, where there are a number of UFO sightings over a particular area for a, a significant amount of time. And it was really, uh, uh, I think it really started the uh, full-scale investigation. By the way, the first congressional um, um, thing that I was involved in was in 1966. The second one was in 68, where Dr. McDonald was uh, involved, and I was involved with setting up some of the uh, material for that. Uh, Major Keogh was there. I was there. Dr. Jim McDonald was there. And McDonald, of course, was a... Um, atmospheric physicist from the University of Arizona who was a good friend of ours and he stayed at our home whenever he was, he was in the uh, Washington DC area and uh, yeah I had the real I, I had the real yeah, honor I, of actually meeting him and there's this picture if yes, you go if yes. you go you, you see it there uh, well I'm on your website where do I look for it okay you click on the big flying saucer around the Capitol that will take you to your guest page tonight okay and that will take I got it. it okay then just scroll down and uh-huh. you'll, you'll see the news items under radio pictures at the very bottom item number six Hoagland nightcap meeting item number six okay you see the pictures Look at I just see the, the number six. Listen, by calling this number seven one. Oh no no! Something. Keep keep going. Keep going. Scroll scroll. Keep going. All right. Yeah. You'll see pictures just above your items. At the very bottom of that row, there's a there's a picture, an ancient picture of me sitting next to McDonald. I was very impressed with James McDonald, and I want to get to okay, him. Okay, wait a minute. I think I got it. The super group, right? That's it. Okay, I got it. Yeah, who's that? Stan Freeman there? There's, no, that's uh, the, the, Dr. Thornton Page with, right? the, with the eye patch. The guy that's the yeah, and then David Morgan, who I think worked at uh, United Technologies. I think that's where he was at the time. Right. Then right. yeah, I see McDonald already over to the right, way over to the right, and then Richard Hoagland. Who's yeah, that kid? Oh, what a terrible picture. Yeah, who's that young kid, I'll tell you. And who well, gave me that well, stupid haircut? Well, I'm years old, so I, I don't look that way anymore. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I want to talk in detail about McDonald a little later in the show, but let's go back to when you joined Nightcap. I mean, it's the uh-huh. most interesting way to get in the heart of the belly of the beast in Washington during this period of time. What was it that they 
why did Dick Hall, who I guess was running NICAP at that point, why did he pick you of all the gin joints to to uh, help try to solve the UFO problem in the 1960s? All the gin joints. Sound like Casablanca. There. Exactly. But anyhow, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it, 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 I don't know, other than we just connected that first night, you know, like sometimes friends do. And he remained a uh, very close friend, as did McDonald, when we all got together there at NICAP over a period of about uh, five years or so. And uh, he he just, uh, I told him of my interest and my how I submitted my sightings to NICAP. He remembered the sightings. Mm. And... Uh, he, he was impressed by the uh, my knowledge of the subject, and he said they needed a uh, another staff member, and he hired me that same night. It was that simple. Amazing. It didn't. Yeah. It, it, and then I spent the next five years there, and then when Dick Hall left for a more lucrative position in '67, I took over as assistant director and later uh, vice president of the organization. Oh my! Tried to keep it afloat, but. Uh, and with some uh, some difficulty. Well, given that. the fact that we now know there were political headwinds, I, I, I want to go back to your first day, your first week, your first month, because in reading the book, apparently they sat you down at a desk and plunked a bunch of files down and said, start reading. Uh, yeah, that, that, that happened quite a bit. and uh, But I, I also um, – began to be the assistant director of the uh, NICAP investigator, so I wrote a lot for that. And then as time wore on, um, I also took over the uh, uh, direction of the 35 or so various subcommittees around the world. Oh, my God. And uh, So this was the preeminent I, civilian... A sighting would come in, say, from Australia or something. Well, Julian Hennessy... Uh, who was also the uh, European director for NICAP, was also covered Australia. And you had people like uh, um, Paul Cerny in California and George Early in Connecticut and places like that that uh, I could contact and say, here is a sighting report you and your subcommittee could investigate and send us a report and see what we can do with it. Yeah, that, that photo That's of me how it was handled. That photo of me was taken on George Early's couch <laughs> in Connecticut. I'll be darned. Yeah. Nineteen sixty eight. Yeah. So so let me go back. They sit you down at the desk and they start giving you files and you wind up working with the investigators. Talk about the structure because people these days can't imagine a civilian organization involved with the most extraordinary reports coming in from around the world with literally worldwide chapters or embassies or institute, whatever, and that you were at the center of the storm in terms of investigation. How did you investigate UFO sightings in 1965? Well, as I said, mainly through the subcommittees. Now, I I went out on several investigations myself and in um South Hill, Virginia in 1967, one in Wanakew, New Jersey, and about that same year. And then there was a sighting in uh, Pennsylvania of what I describe as a baby UFO that landed on a parking lot of a elementary school or a, a middle school, I guess it was, and a few things like that. But, but most of the time I spent uh, 
in the office just uh, organizing the subcommittee, uh, trying uh, getting out the UFO re uh, investigator every month or every two months. And, uh, and that was the the national international newsletter because of course there was no internet, no email, no blogs. Right. Yeah. So you literally typed it. For... You literally typed this thing up and then had it printed. Then you mailed it to the membership. How many members did NICAP have at its heyday? At its heyday, it had over ten thousand members, which doesn't sound like very much today, perhaps. But back then, it was a pretty significant amount. And a lot of our members uh, kept us afloat by contributing monies here and there, and uh, also by subscribing to the the uh, NICAP investigator. And uh, that's more, more or less how we did it. And of course, Major Kehoe was sort of a a hero and mentor of mine because I had read his first two books and was hooked. And then he wrote three more uh, books after that. And uh, um, I joined the NICAP staff, well, as I say, it was 1965, uh, I think it was about April. Hmm. And uh, Okay, if we want to scroll further down on your guest page, we have Gordon Lore's items, and each item you can click and it makes it bigger. Item number one is a picture you took of uh, uh, Donald Kehoe, Major Kehoe, in front of, yeah. I guess, the door of the office of NICAP. That's correct. Yeah, he's there akimbo. He liked to stand akimbo. Matter of fact, uh, Kehoe, uh, the, the next visual shows flying with Kehoe, with Lindbergh, and uh, Kehoe was the uh, man who organized the tour of Admiral, of, uh, of uh, Charles Lindbergh after his historic flight to, to uh, Paris from New York in uh, 1927. And uh, he actually flew the lead plane Right behind, right behind Lindbergh, and uh, sometimes the airfields got so crowded that he uh, he had to go in with his plane first and slowly c clear the field. Oh my God! With the like wings of his plane of all the people that crowded around <laughs> to see Lindbergh land. <laughs> That's a side of Keel I've never heard before. That's right. Yeah, he, he did that. He also organized the uh, the uh, after Admiral Richard Byrd. Uh, discovered the North Pole. He also organized Admiral Byrd's flight as uh, a, a tour of the U.S. at the time as well. So, so Kehoe had a. Uh, of course, he was a major figure. He was a major in the U.S. Marine Corps. He even crashed his plane in Guam in the 20s and uh, got out of the air, uh, air uh, the Marine Corps for a while. Now he and Admiral Roscoe Hillenclair, the first director of the CIA were good friends at the Naval Academy, and they both graduated there in uh, 1920. And of course, he hired uh, or he put uh, Admiral Helen Coiter as the chairman of the NICAP Board of Governors uh, there when NICAP first started. I remember so it, being very young and seeing, I think, an interview with Kehoe on CBS, some CBS news program, uh, maybe yeah. it was Face the Nation or something. Talk about Kehoe as a person. How did this Marine major wind up the central figure in the 50s and early 60s in the whole UFO thing? How did, how did Kehoe well, get to well, be Kehoe? What happened was that he, uh, he wrote a bunch of books, mostly sci-fi stuff, you know, sort of Buck Rogers stuff. He would write 
uh, fictional stories about rockets to the moon and Mars and places like that. And he worked for True Magazine. And uh, True Magazine uh, published a lot of his stuff. And then Ken Purdy, the editor of True Magazine in 1950, said, called up Kehoe at his home and uh, said, uh, are you familiar with this flying saucer stuff? And Keo said, sort of, well, a little bit. I'm, uh, I'm not very familiar with it. And he says, well, I want you to cover it. There is some some really interesting flying saucer stuff going on. And this was after the the uh, Kenneth Arnold sighting of June 1947, where this businessman, private pilot, spotted nine disc-shaped objects around uh, Mount Rainier and described them as like saucers skipping over water, uh, bringing in the term flying saucers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Kehoe uh, was reluctant at first because he wasn't that interested. But then he, uh, then Ken Purdy sort of told him that he had better do it or Purdy wasn't going to publish any more. <laughs> the ultimate editorial hammer. That's right. That's the uh, ultimate editorial thing. And uh, so Kehoe more or less had to agree. Then he really got into it and was so interested that he published the first article called Flying Saucers Are Real in 1950, and that became one of the two or three most read articles uh, in um, the history of American publishing. And then the same year, he wrote a full-length book, expanded that into the Flying Saucers from from, uh, uh, The Flying Saucers Are Real into an actual book. So he became the first author to write both a serious article and uh, the first book ever on UFOs in 1950, and then uh, got into NICAP in uh, uh, 1965 to uh, 1957. He became director of NICAP, and the rest is sort of history. (laughs) So his – see, the part about Kehoe's background that I had never known until just now – is his connection uh-huh. with Lindbergh and with Admiral Byrd. So yes, he uh-huh. was really a personage, and he knew the right people. How in an era before the Internet and before easy communications, because a long-distance call cost a fortune in those days, how did he do the research to, to, do the, to background his, his books and articles? Well, he knew a lot of people, Dewey Fournay, Colonel Joseph Bryan, Hillen Coiter, and others from the Pentagon because he had been so much in touch with them. And uh, as I say, Ad- Admiral Hillen Coiter was the, uh, you know, his his close his closest friend at the Naval Academy, and he kept in touch with him, particularly after he started his article and book for True Magazine, and he it, and he really began get getting really interested in it, and he thought it might make a good book, and as it turned out, he wrote five books on the subject. The last one was um, Aliens from Space, uh, published in 1968. As a matter of fact, there's a picture of me uh, on uh, NASA's unexplained uh, files, Secret Aliens, if you ever come across that on your TV streaming, where I'm sitting in the middle uh, of, a, of the table, the National Press Club, Major Keo is sitting on my right, and Richard Hall is on my left. 
and uh, and that was in 1968. Quite a few years ago, I look quite different than mm. I do now. By the way, if you scroll down to item number five in Radio with Pictures and your items, there is Gordon, a much younger Gordon, like a much younger me. You, you look better in those photographs than I did. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, there I am typing on my book, Mysteries of the Skies. Yeah, I see that. <laughs> is, that is, is that an old Underwood? I don't know. It could be. I mean, there's a huge. Of course, right under the picture, right under that. See me on the right there. I'm I'm a I'm circling the spot where a UFO landed in South Hill, Virginia, on April 21st, 67. And the picture below that is uh, Leon Katchen, a staff member, and myself uh, looking at a burned-out area that this UFO made after it had landed there and that took off. And then on, right under that is a picture of Jim McDonald and then Lonnie Zamora and then uh, Jacques Fillet and uh, J. Allen Hynek. I talked with Jacques Fillet not, not about a couple of months ago. He he got a hold of a copy of my book and said he really liked it a lot. Oh, well, I'm loving it when I get – don't don't get yeah. distracted by phone calls and everybody well, wanted – Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> there. And there's that final picture of myself, a little bit older. <laughs> a little bit. Okay, Anyhow, we only got we only got a couple of minutes. Exciting time there. We only have a couple of minutes to the top of the hour. When we come back, what I want to do is I want to talk about how Kehoe went from being an author bludgeoned by his editor into doing a book or an article on a subject he didn't really care about, to where he cared enough to actually form. NICAP. I want you to talk about the formation of NICAP because I didn't realize until maybe a couple, three months ago that T. Townsend Brown was critically involved. And we can talk with the audience about who T. Townsend Brown is and why that's so intriguingly ironic and not that coincidental. So I'll tell you what, hold it yeah, there. I don't know. Hold it I'm, there. Right. We're, we're yeah, at the top of the hour and we should return. Okay. My guest this morning is Gordon Lore. We're talking about ufology, UFOs, in an era when it was all brand new and shiny, and the newspapers covered it seriously. Can you imagine? We shall return. Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. 
Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. this Saturday night, a night of UFOs with Gordon Lore, from the time when it all began. Gordon, I wanted to go back to the formation of NICAP and how these two guys, these very different guys, got together to create what at that time was the preeminent civilian science, you know, citizen scientist-based organization, apart from government, apart from media, apart from everything else, just concerned citizens trying to figure out the most bewildering and fascinating puzzle of the time, still is in my opinion, how did these guys get together and create the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon? Well, it, uh, you know, I I think it really started with uh, Kehoe's interest and his, his, uh, knowledge of the subject, the fact that he wrote the first book on the subject, he kept in contact because of the Ken Purdy and the uh, True Magazine article that came out in 1950. And then he maintained uh, contact with a number of people in the Pentagon, including Admiral Helen Coyter, the first CIA director, Colonel Joseph Bryan, and uh, others on the NICAP that finally went on the NICAP board um, of governors and um, now uh, I don't know much about Townsend Brown I, I mean I, I'm just not that familiar with him but I know when he and he and Kehoe started it uh, Brown had control of all the finances and he sort of ran the organization into the ground during that first year um, 1956 and then he was uh, let go, and then uh, Kehoe took over as of January 1st, 1957, and started building the organization back up again. Uh, and uh, Kehoe, since his book, uh, uh, his first two books, I guess, uh, Flag Saucer from Outer Space, and and uh, and uh, his second book, and then they uh, took off and. Uh, uh, create a lot of interest. He got thousands of of letters and uh, calls and whatnot from UFO witnesses around the country, and uh, so he was determined to keep NICAP going. Uh, going, and he struggled with that for the next dozen years. As a matter of fact, he even curtailed his daughter's education in college to keep NICAP going during the 1960s. Gosh. And uh, well, let and, and it so much. I mean, there was 57 UFO flaps, uh, 52, then uh, 66, 67, and then of course NICAP uh, 
went on under at the beginning of of um, of uh, when was it 1970, and then of course there was another flap in '73 and on, but uh, and, and it was tremendously covered by newspapers, magazines, uh, radio, even you know, and even some television, although this television was more or less in its infancy at the time. Let me let me uh, a lot of coverage. Gordon, let me let me let me kind of give you some background that maybe you're not aware of and the reason that I'm so intrigued with T Townsend Brown and the fact that he uh-huh. was the co-creator of NICAP. T Townsend Brown was a naval veteran. He was a I don't know I don't know what rank he ultimately rose to. Um a captain I, or maybe beyond. Do you know? Uh, no I don't. I I'm not that familiar with it. Okay. The key thing about Townsend Brown is he was a physicist, and he worked on essentially practical anti-gravity technologies. In other words, one of the big mysteries of the 40s and 50s when the UFO thing came up was how do these damn things fly? What keeps them aloft? They're not airfoils. They're not using propellers. They're not using jets. They're using something which counters inertia, you know, counters gravity and all this. So the fact that T. Townsend Brown back in the 1920s had been doing experiments where he developed something called electrogravitic technology, where you take a wow. condenser or a capacitor and you put high voltage into it in a pulse, and the damn thing moves. And it moves on Earth. It, it will move in, in Earth orbit. It'll move you know, between Earth and Mars. It will move under some non-reaction propulsion scientific law or mechanism. And the idea that this guy, this physicist, who was a business guy, he you know was consultant for a number of major companies, and as I said, he'd run all these experiments for the Navy on the on the QT. Some of them are still classified to this day. Teamed up with the leading flying saucer public personality of the time, Donald Kehoe, and they co-created this organization. To me, is mm-hmm. has been astonishingly interesting. Okay. Be darned. Yeah, you seem to know more about it, uh, the actual creation of the agency, than I do in, in, uh, in that regard, at any rate. Yeah, I didn't know that much about T. Thompson Brown. He always sounds like a an offshoot of Nicholas Tesla or something, you know? Well, kind of. I mean, he was very prolific. He was very oh. – um, but but the this the, came out – I mean, he was really a scientist, so his business managerial expertise – was probably or lack thereof was probably the reason why NICAP didn't uh, didn't uh, really go very far under his management because he wasn't a manager. He was a scientist. Mm-hmm. But Kehoe, apparently with his military background and the fact that he'd organized the tour for Lindbergh, an astonishing thing I didn't know about, and he was closely mm-hmm. connected with Bird after Bird came back from the polar expeditions. Obviously, Kehoe had the managerial expertise that Brown lacked, and he also knew all these people connected in government. So to me, it seems natural that if he took over, it was going to work, and it it obviously did. Uh, yeah, it did for, for about 12 years, yeah, until it, it didn't. But the, I, I think that really the the sword that stabbed NICAP in the heart was the Condon report coming out in January of 69, uh, which was a, a very negative report, of course, and uh, and, and that solved to really uh, get people uh, 
some people at least turned off on the subject. And uh, so our funds dried up and we had to close at the end of uh, 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 69. Well, let's not beat to the, the end of the story. Let's go back to when you joined NICAP and Dick Hall, you know, dumps all these files on your desk and you're in the book, you're reading and you're excited and you're intrigued. What was your first big field investigation? What was the case that grabbed you to where you got out from behind the desk and actually went out and tried to figure out what the hell was going on? Well, it wasn't my first case, but it was probably, uh, I think it was maybe the second case. I actually went out in the field and investigated and I was in, uh, South Hill, Virginia, in uh, 1967, April of 1967, and I showed you the pictures of me circling the road there and whatnot, and, uh, and this object, which wasn't that big, it was about 30 feet tall and about 15 feet wide, it landed on four stilt-like legs in uh, South Hill, Virginia, just above the North Carolina border. Okay, so this, so this is the one in pictures seven and six, where you're walking yeah. around on this macadam road, which has a burn mark. It almost looks like it's a glassy, that the macadam, the asphalt, was turned to glass because of some kind of heating. That's correct, yeah. It was, it was almost like that. And I had to take measurements of the hole, and I, I, I met with a, oh, I forget his name now, but it was someone from the, uh, the, uh, uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek's office, and it was the first case Hynek said that uh, he, he said it 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 uh, could not be explained. But this tobacco farmer saw this disc that that um, on four stilt-like legs that landed on the uh, macadam surface, then took off, left the road burning, and went out over some trees. A number of a tobacco farmer in the area. Uh, Clifton Crowder was the warehouse manager, was the main witness. And so we went down there with a um, member of Allen's, I think it was, his name was Powell, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, we took measurements, sent them back, and that became the first uh, significant sighting that I investigated. And there were, there were several more, but I wasn't a field investigator. So I, I mainly worked from the office uh um, as the head of the subcommittees and uh, the uh, assistant director of the UFO uh, uh, investigator, uh, which I wrote hundreds of articles for involving um, citing reports from all over the world, really. And we had subcommittee members in a lot of, of in, in, in just about all of the states and in a number of countries as well. So it was a very exciting time, particularly back in the 60s. Then I started my own organization in 1970 to 1980 and met some very interesting people. I had some new material on the famous Mantell case. That's the case in 1947, January, where a pilot was actually killed after after pursuing a UFO, but not by the UFO. He lost... uh, his oxygen and crashed to earth in January 19. So he basically blacked out from lack of oxygen at the altitude. He was trying to reach the saucer, and this this jet of the time was kind of primitive, and it went up above where his oxygen system could could. Uh, That's correct. As as a matter of fact, when I first started my organization, uh, uh, E. Garrison Wood, a lieutenant colonel, 
uh, and it's in my uh, book, and uh, it's uh, in Chapter 21 that called The Mantell Tragedy, where uh, Mantell called me um, and said that he was a witness, and I have the witness. I think I was the first one to break that story, and I have it in my book here where he was actually a witness to the uh, Mantell Tragedy and the UFO that hovered in the sky for a long period of time. Now, there were the Air Force came out, and I think, uh, said it was skyhook balloons, but how a skyhook balloon could outrun a jet uh, plane at a speed of about 500 miles an hour, they couldn't explain. <laughs> and, I, I uh, think I made a mistake. I think I said he was in a jet. I think he was in a Mustang. I don't remember the number, P-51, P-57. But um, he was in a prop plane, and it had a ceiling, you know, because you couldn't go with a prop air- aircraft above a certain level. That's correct. Because of lack could, of oxygen. You could only go so far. In, uh, See, I've seen yeah. those skyhook balloons out here in the deserts of New Mexico, and particularly, you know, with our crystal clear air in the land of enchantment. Wow. Um, they, they, they're typically at like 100,000 feet, and even after sunset, they're glowing brilliantly in the binoculars. There's this big circular disc because the balloon at those altitudes puffs up from a long sausage-like thing to a, to a full sphere. So if Mantell really had been trying to reach a, one of those balloons, it was, you know, hundreds of a thousand feet above his, his ceiling. He would never reach it. That's right. That's right. Exactly. That, that's, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, he was, a, I think it was, uh, well, anyway, it was at Godman Field in Kentucky. It was about 145, according to Garrison Wood. And this was, uh, oh, it, it was January 7th, if memory serves, January 7th, 1948. And uh, Garrison Wood called me and said he was willing to tell me what he knew about the uh, tragic event of, uh, of uh, Mantell being killed. And he was a young pilot, only about 27. Hmm. And uh, he was chasing this. Um, this uh, it, it, it was a uh, it was a Mustang. I guess it was a F five one D Mustang, something like that. And uh, he spotted the object himself, Colonel Wood, about 11:30 a.m. And then he called the operation officer of the Air National Guard group at Standardford Field, and they sent up three P 51s. And then uh, Mantell, the flight leader, said the three planes, uh, they were returning from a ferry flight uh, from Atlanta to the airfield. And Mantell said they would investigate the object if the flight planes were closed, flight plans were closed out from Stanford. Stanford. And then uh, uh, Mantell called and Colonel Wood told me over the phone, actually, that he believed his last words were, I'm not gaining on it. Hmm. And then the deputy commanding officer, another saw the plane disappear, but the object was still in view. Then Mantell continued his pursuit as he passed the 25,000 foot mark. He apparently was struck with a lack of action or hypoxia and fatally lost control. Playing uh, quickly began spiraling in circles toward the ground and landed hard on a farm south of Franklin, Kentucky, and and uh, he was killed. Of course, mm. the only 
Miley that we know of that was killed while uh, chasing a UFO, although it doesn't appear to be that it was the UFO's fault. But that, um, and Carl Wood also told me uh, that it wasn't the first time he'd seen a UFO. He, in July 1945, he said, while he was stationed at the Grand Island Nebraska Army Air Corps at the closing days of World War II, he and the others observed what he called something overhead high in the sky. Then at that time, a P-63 was scrambled aloft to about 45,000 feet, uh, but nothing was reported. Uh, but there was an object that they had been chasing, and uh, uh, that was pretty much it. At the time I talked with him, Wood was a veteran of like 65 World War II combat missions over southern Europe with a heavy bomber group of the uh, 15th Air Force. So uh, he had a lot of insight on, the, on, on particularly the Mantell tragedy. So I say it was the only time that we know of that a pilot was killed while chasing a UFO, although it, did, it doesn't seem to be as of a direct action from the UFO itself. Hmm. I'll tell you what, let's go back to when you're sitting at that desk and you're going through these reports. I've got your uh, your listing here of some of the early cases that you reported on. Let's start with the ones in, in Texas because you give a much better and much more you know, robust description of some really bizarre things that were seen and a UFO that kept hopping around for a couple, three nights and landing on all kinds of roads so people could see it. And it killed their engines and car lights and radios. That's right, electromagnetic effects. That's that was really a a a, a tremendous amount of uh, of um, it, it, I think I call the chapter the UFO invasion of West Texas. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was uh, a lot of sightings. I've I trying to think who the investigator of. That was that sent me all the uh, of the reports there, but um, this was a oh place gosh. around a place called Leveland, Texas. Leveland, Texas. That's right. And there were heavy uh, uh, EM effects. The uh, person that sent me the report said, uh, "Quote something." As I'm reading here now, something. Quote something happened near the town that night. That, that could have come straight out of a science fiction tale or a wild nightmare, except that it was not imaginary, but very real. Uh, the testimonies of persons who saw a brilliant, glowing, red, egg-shaped object some 200 feet long sitting on the road and cutting off the automobile engines and lights. Now, this was Walter Webb, who was our investigator. He was the an astronomer at the Charles Hayden Planetarium in Boston, Massachusetts. He says, when this thing took off, engines and lights functioned normally. At least 10 car motors were affected around Leveland. And then the police uh, uh, officers got into it. There was a, one officer on duty listened to a terrified witness. I believe his name was Pedro Salcido. He was a farmhand who uh, related a strange story that they were about, he and a friend were about four miles west of Leveland when they spotted a torpedo-shaped UFO that was about 200 feet long. Now, that's a long UFO. Good grief. And he said, I mean, airliners of we, the day then were only about 100 feet. That's right. 
and he said, quote, uh, I think he's, he, well, we saw, we first saw a flash of light in the field to our right and didn't think much about it. Then it rose up out of the field and started toward us, picking up speed. When he got near, the lights of my truck went out and the motor died. I jumped out and hit the deck as the, as the <laughs> thing passed directly over the truck. With a great sound and a rush of wind, it sounded like thunder, and my truck rocked from the blast. Now, hold it there. Hold it there. Of- hold it there. A lot of UFO sightings in that period were totally silent, 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 silent. This report from a, just an average guy sounds like a physical object moving over his truck and causing aerodynamic effects of a physical object moving at high speed. That's right. As a matter of fact, he said it sounded like an ear-splitting clap of thunder as if something had exploded. It broke the sound barrier. That's right. The patrol uh, officer, Fowler, um, initially shrugged the report off because he thought the caller was drunk. But about an hour later, just before midnight, the police station rang again. The caller, uh, Jim Wheeler from Witherall, said he was driving around east of Levelin on the Lubbock route when he came across a brilliant 200-foot egg-shaped object. Sounds like the same one, mm-hmm. sitting on the road. His car lights went out and the motor again died. The UFO was lit up like a neon lights, and it cast a bright glare over the entire uh, area. Then as, the, um, as Wheeler began exiting his own automobile, the object rose to an altitude of about 200 feet. Uh, then the brilliant light went out, and simultaneously Wheeler's lights came back on in his vehicle. So a lot of incidents uh, around that area at that time were reported very much like that. Most of them were had they were their stalled cars and trucks on the roadway when these objects were sometimes landed right in front of them, then took off. When they took off, the objects, the uh, vehicles worked uh, worked fine after that. Okay, let me ask you this question. Amazing. Let me ask you this. You're, uh-huh. working, you're working for an organization that was run by a, a major in the U.S. Marine Corps, former retired. You're running uh-huh. an organization which has on its board admirals and generals, including Hillen Cotter, who you know, created the CIA or was running at that time. The CIA didn't create it, but he was running it. It sounds to me if you have a technology which can stop cars and engines and turn out lights by remote control – that's an incredible uh-huh. military application. Was there any interest on the part of the folks that Kehoe is, you know, talking to on basically getting a handle on this technology? Because it could be very useful to stop tanks and rockets and aircraft, you know, trying to bomb us, that kind of thing. Did, 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 did NICAP at all talk about inside the military applications of this amazing technology? Not that I recall. Uh, Kehoe may have talked about it with, with somebody that I wasn't familiar with, but uh, uh, not that I recall. Of course, that almost sounds like something out of the Independence Day movie, you know, where we have these uh, objects stowed away, like in Wright-Patterson Air Force Base or maybe in Area 51, where we're learning about their technology and are even giving, being given instructions from uh, aliens from space about how to uh, operate all of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, the thing that but strikes you know, me here is these aren't just distant lights in the sky. These are things that have sound effects. They have 
engine effects. They affect cars, vehicles, electric lights. Exactly. How could how could the period ignore this technology, which has such obvious military applications? I know. Well, you know, as far as we know, it was ignored, but maybe it wasn't. I don't know. You know, the thing is, it's uh, it's very strange. I I know this latest uh, group, the AATIP, American. What's the name? It was run by Robert Bigelow. Help me out. My 82-year-old memory is failing me here. Um, the Aerial Threat Identification Program that's run out of the Pentagon. And Robert Bigelow actually um, had uh, warehouses in Las Vegas where he said they were storing um, materials from space that they had picked up from crashed saucers. Yeah, this is part that, of that, uh, that revealed Pentagon program that... Um, that's um, correct, um, yeah. yeah. That was published in the New York and, Times uh, back in December of 2017. This is that's decades, right. yeah, I have, decades after I have the that. era we're talking about. Yeah, exactly. I have that as the last chapter in my book, as a matter of fact, and it's still, it's still going on. Uh, to the Stars Academy, which is Robert Bigelow's thing now, that he's using as an umbrella to yeah, I wanna, study goal. I want to talk next about the Killian case because this to me was so interesting because there was such long contact between outside people, the airline pilot, the military, the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the press, all about a pilot, several pilots apparently working for a number of airlines who all saw this bizarre formation of UFOs over Pennsylvania some night in 1959, I think, the Killian case. Yeah, it was, um, oh, when, when was he at, I think it was 59, I think it was about, uh, um, he was a veteran pilot with uh, American Airlines, as I recall, when he, he said he saw, quote, three lights off my life right left wing in the vicinity of Bradford, Pennsylvania, and west of Williamsport, and he was flying at about uh, 8,500 VFR on top of broken clouds. He says uh, when he saw lights, uh, object that lights had a yellow to a light orange color, and their intensity changed from dim to a bright brilliant. And sometimes the inter- interval of the three lights were identified to the belt in the constellation Orion. Occasionally the red lights lagged, and when some what behind and he uh, Killian said the lights also changed altitudes uh, then the pilot Killian his co-pilot crew and passengers saw them for about 50 minutes that's a long time says, well didn't this airplane time, didn't this aircraft have something like 30 passengers and the stewardesses actually turned out the cabin lights so all the passengers right. could see it exactly so they saw from the uh, darkened inside of the aircraft, when the lights turned out, uh, sort of a, this display in the uh, um, in the sky. At first, Killian thought he may have seen a jet tanker refueling, but he he, he wasn't convinced of that at all. And later, he seemed certain it was not an aerial refueling. He said his airspeed during the flight was about 250. Knots. He also said it was difficult for me to believe that they were jets because of low uh, of low speed and configuration. Hmm. So, uh, 
Well, the Air Force ultimately said that what they had seen was the three belt stars of the constellation of Orion. But Killian says in your book that he could mm -hmm. see Orion out his front windshield and he could see the UFO out his left uh, window. And obviously you can't confuse the, the constellation with the artificial objects flying in formation. So the Air Force That's explanation right. was nuts. Yeah, well, the Air Force explanation also said that uh, uh, put it out as a jet refueling thing. But, but, it, but the, how the objects could dart around the sky and do the maneuvers they did as a, as a jet refueling thing didn't make any sense at all. I'll tell you what, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning, Gordon Lore. We're talking about the lore of UFOs in the 1950s and 60s. Here on the other side of midnight, we shall return. midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. everyone to the sound effects from this island earth i love this show tonight because it gives us a chance to play all this cool music that you only hear you know if you go to maybe amazon or something my guest this morning is gordon lore we're talking about the golden era of ufology back when it was all brand new and totally mysterious and the press actually dealt with it, most of them anyway, seriously. So the Killian case went on for months and months because apparently there's conflicting reports, at least that's what the impression I get from your book. Uh, by the way, let's, let's plug your book. What's the title of your book and how can people get hold of it? Yeah, it's uh, Flying Saucers from Beyond the Earth, a UFO Researcher's Odyssey. And uh, 
It's published by Bear Manor Media, B-E-A-R-M-A-N-O-R Media, uh, .com, and uh, it's also available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and a few other outlets. Uh, people can also get uh, autographed copies directly from me if they want to uh, uh, do that uh, by contacting me at my phone number or email address. Yeah, those are listed at the uh, bottom of the web page. Right next to your right. your your, uh, your very nice picture. It's a nice picture of you. Well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, I was I was, I was just going over a little more of the case. Actually, the Air Force, the Killian case, Air Force did put out the uh, refueling thing because I, uh, Richard Hall, who was a close friend and um, and uh, assistant director before I was, uh, Tacker said that it was a KC ninety seven tanker. Um, which was one of those old flying prop jobs. Yeah, which was uh, accomplishing night refueling. and But he couldn't explain the, how the, the lights maneuvered the way they did in the uh, – you know, and, of course, Kehoe wasn't buying it. He said uh, the, the Air Force uh, refueling explanation saying that, uh, that uh, after Killian and his crew landed, um, then – they disclosed that there had been no such flights involving refueling operations uh, at the time. So the Air Force lied. Also, there, yeah, right. And also in an interview with Lex Mabane of Saucer Civilian uh, Research Group of, out of New York said uh, that not only had the color of the UFOs altered at times from yellowish to bluish white, intensity has also varied from extreme brilliance to temporary fade-outs. And the speed of the UFOs also varied, according to Captain Killian. At times, the objects would, call, would, would quickly pull ahead. Then they seemed to lag behind as if they were waiting for Killian to catch up with them. Now, he wasn't the only pilot of a, of a commercial airliner that night simultaneously on the radio to see these objects and to talk among themselves at eight to 9,000 feet over Pennsylvania they're all looking – three or four airliners are all looking at this thing, and they're all talking to each other about, what's that? What's that? Yeah, and, and, and uh, the, uh, they weren't buying the explanation there was a refueling operation or the Orion constellation. And then uh, Kehoe reported that the, uh, the Air Force tactics in the recent airlines case may backfire on the sensors. party of airline pilots who have seen UFOs unite in self-defense, their combined testimony will have a powerful impact on, on Congress. I think he was talking about the, the uh, upcoming 1968 congressional hearings. Um, uh, 1966, I mean, the 68 was uh, two years later, but they had two of them, the 66 and 68. And the Killian case was the one that uh, I think was in testimony during the 66 congressional hearings. Yeah, talk- there's been a lot of cases like that that couldn't be explained. Okay, let's go now to South New Mexico, south of me here tonight. Talk about Socorro. Well, Socorro was a case we heavily investigated. That occurred before I got on board at NICAB. I think that was in April of 1964. And police officer uh, Lonnie Zamora was on routine patrol duty outside of town, outside of Socorro, when he saw this uh, disc that was on the ground with three small occupants surrounding it. 
and then uh, when the occupants saw the uh, officer, they got back in the disc, took off at a tremendous speed, and just cleared a dynamite shack by only uh-huh. a few feet. Uh, as Zomara thought it was going to crash into the dynamite shack and blow up, but uh, it missed it and uh, flew away. And then his case got, uh, I think it was J. Edgar Hoover that got interested in that case. Oh, really? And uh, yeah, he, he first got interested in that. It's it's there in my book somewhere. And uh, it, was, it was the ground, it was April 24th, 1964. And then Hoover got interested in it. And then, uh, actually, there was a little question at the time. There was a memo from uh, a guy, Hotel, um, on uh, March 22nd, 1950, um, who wrote about the uh, Socorro case. And um, actually, uh, Hoover wanted to keep on top of it. And uh, he wanted to stay on top of the UFO reports and investigations, but wasn't getting from the top input about the sightings. And I said in my book that that was probably because Harry S. Truman, the president, had no love for the FBI director. He thought Hoover had the capacity of of becoming a petty dictator. Mm. And uh, so uh, Hoover only met Hoover one time about a month after he became president and never saw him again after that. You mean Truman only met Hoover once? Yeah, only once. But uh, Hoover maintained his interest in uh, in uh, UFOs, and then uh, and, and then I have something in my book called "Mining the Vault," in which the controversy about the field investigation of UFO reports, particularly the crash and retrieval cases, of which there were quite a few. I have a number by Lynn Stringfield, who was a Major Keogh's friend, and who sent me a copy of uh, of, of his reports. Um, after I started my own organization. and uh, But by far the most viewed document over a two-year period from 2011 to 2013 from the uh, Black Vaults opening had been on March 22, 1950, uh, in which over one million people had had viewed the page one document addressed to Hoover. And... uh, the subject of the blockbuster memo said that the Air Force investigator alleged that three flying saucers had been recovered in New Mexico. A spe- specific time and location were not this. Could they have been talking about Roswell? And I said, probably not. And then I go into a lot of reports of, and, and then finally into the Roswell case, which, uh, uh, NICAP, you, you know, NICAP has an excellent website. Uh, that was began and is run by Fran Ridge, who was a uh, the head of our Indiana subcommittee back in the NICAP days, and he's doing a great job on keeping the NICAP uh, uh, um, presence alive. Hmm. So it's been uh, it was some very exciting years there, and I got my five year education, and <laughs> which served me good for the next ten years when I ran my own. UFO organization, and half of my book is devoted to that as well. So, what was the procedure? What was the procedure? I want to go back to the NICAP thing. To me, NICAP is fascinating because it starts out kind of shaky. Ground, you know, bows out. Kehoe takes over. It's at the height of interest in space. Fifty-seven, you know, Sputnik, Russians, all that. 
It, it gets yeah. all this membership. It's got bureaus all over the world. When a call came in, how did you decide how it would be investigated and how were the reports sent to you to be written up in the investigator? Well, as I say, you know, it was back before the Internet and email and stuff, so a, 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 a report would come in, sometimes even just the newspaper report. Uh, but sometimes a, um, a an actual witness would, would write us a note or even give us a call saying, I saw an object, etc. And uh, so we would have investigators in the nearest area um, um, we would call them up. I'd call up the head of the the subcommittee and ask them to investigate. And that's how we got a lot of our reports in, several thousands of them, actually. And a lot of those were turned over to the University of Colorado UFO Project. But uh, the, uh, the NICAP subcommittees had, uh, oh, say around 15 to 20 on average, some a little bit less, some more. And, they, and, and some of these people were uh, real, um, um, had a lot of technical expertise. Some were scientists like Jim McDonald and uh, uh, physicists, astronomers, and so on. And they usually did a pretty credible job of uh, investigating these reports. And uh, this is without benefit of so much of the modern technology they have today. So there were... Uh, just, I guess NICAP, I mean, it may sound small today, but NICAP had, oh, maybe 12,000 reports uh, in its files uh, when it actually closed down. And these were carefully researched. I mean, you had people that went out in the field and they interviewed and they did measurements. I mean, that photograph of you there, you know, kneeling by that glassy pool of uh, asphalt in the middle of a highway. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, that happened quite a bit, when, and uh, that, that's how we got our our um, original uh, information on uh, a lot of sightings, and uh, uh, had to determine whether this was good or whether this was something that could be explained in terms other than a UFO. And the amazing thing is that even today, the latest Gallup poll showed that 95% of of all Americans know about the subject and more than half about 53 percent have seen things they couldn't explain in the sky i think it's higher than that myself but uh hmm. i'll find out i'm having the launch of my book here on wednesday and i'm going to ask how many people uh have seen ufos <laughs> hmm. let me go now down to a, a, a sighting that i have not heard of the morgantown victory and other sightings at sea Yes, the Morgantown Victory was. Uh, that's the name I of the ship, a, right? Uh, that's a, that's the name of a victory ship. Now there were like 25 victory ships during World War II that sent supplies and medical equipment and whatnot uh, to people uh, on the battlefronts. And uh, so the uh, oh the. Uh, uh, I had a contact of a Texas Naval Air Station in Lexington Park, Maryland, who sent me a sea uh, lift copy of Sea Lift magazine where this thing was reported. And uh, this was a, this was a was Navy a publication. 
Yeah, uh, Sea Lift Magazine was a Navy publication. That's correct. And there was a Captain Glenn Petrie who was the the um, um, captain of the Morgantown Victory uh, gave a detailed summary of the events. And then I, f I followed up a little bit with his contact I had and got more information. But uh, Captain Petrie himself said that uh, just prior to 11, 11 p.m. on January 11, 66, I was in my bunk when I heard a hurried clatter of feet on the bridge grating over my head. The phone rang, and my third mate reported what appeared to be a plane of fire on the post quarter. I ran to the bridge but could see nothing. Then the information uh, given me, uh, he said, indicated that a plane had been troubled and had ditched on the port quarter. But then they figured, well, it, it, nobody heard a sound such as a plane may have made. And that uh, that there were phone calls from uh, the object that flew over the starboard quarter. Then the uh, third mate ran to the starboard wing and looked forward, seeing nothing. Then another phone call on the bow. Um, the uh, then the third mate saw the object and it flew around the uh, ship. And other uh, uh, people on board the ship as well. Now, a lot of things uh, happened. I went on to give other uh, information about flying saucers that were seen in the 18th. The, the, there was even one case of, uh, in, in January 1864, January the 18th, 1644, when, uh, what was his name? I, I think it was uh, John Winthrop. He was governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony said that he wrote that James Everill and two other mariners, and uh, this was in 1644, were on a barge heading up the muddy river during the night in Massachusetts when they saw a huge light swoop down on them. Frightened and bewildered, the men found that they were being incredibly drawn up tide by an unknown powerful force. They looked up and saw a large object, which then quickly disappeared. Trio rode frantically to shore, where a number of people also gave a, uh, accounts of the remarkable light in the sky. Oh, my. And, uh, 1864, was, huh? 1644. 1644. Uh, oh, my God. 1644, before the Revolutionary War. Wow. And some observers on the ground said the light sometimes shot out flames and sparks. As if it were actually an aerial object uh, that hmm. was shooting out the flames and sparks, and and that was purported in John Winthrop's uh, journal. And uh, I came up with a number of reports like that. Uh, some of them were were in my first book, Mysteries of the Skies, 1948, which was the first book ever written about the historical aspects of the subject, going back for several hundred years before the Kenneth Arnold sighting in June of 1947, which started the modern era of UFO reports. Okay. I'm, I'm just kind of skipping around in this. This book is so fascinating. It's so, if you've ever been interested in the early years and meticulous documentation of unbelievable things, you're going to want to get this book. Like, I want you to talk now about 2001 A Space Odyssey and something you call the Titusville humanoid. What's that? 
Oh my goodness, the tight <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna have to to uh revive my memory on that. Um yeah, well, I'll, I'll talk about the uh, Space Odyssey first. And uh, what happened was that um, back in 1967, um, um, I got a call at NICAP headquarters from uh, Frederick Ordway. Oh, my now, God. Frederick Ordway. Frederick you know, Ordway? With, uh, the Frederick with, Ordway. You know, von, that's right. With, uh, with, he worked with... Werner von Braun at the Huntsville Space Center. And our, my friend Arthur and C. He Clark. wanted to talk to Kehoe, but he wanted to have a meeting with Kehoe the next day, but Kehoe was at his home in Array, Virginia, and couldn't come up. So I substituted for Kehoe, and Ordway invited me to uh, lunch the next day. And uh, so I went to lunch with him, and he said that he be, he was the technical advisor on Stanley Kubrick's film, 2001 a space odyssey and uh he said that one thing that they wanted to try to find out was uh if we had any thoughts about how astronauts could survive many years sometimes decades or even hundreds of years if we were going to go into far distant planets uh, and have them colonized or investigated or whatever and so I knew that a a, 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 a medical doctor um, in, uh, oh gosh, what was his name? I'm having trouble remembering now. But uh, he was a member of our, of our Los Angeles subcommittee, and he was interested in cryonic interment. Now, cryonic interment back in the 60s was a popular thing where if you froze your body in a deep freeze, and then if you had cancer or something, the cure was, uh, cure was sound for cancer, that you might be revived and uh, cured that way. Ted Williams was cryonically interred, for instance. But during the 60s, that was a big thing, but it never took hold. And then I suggested that, however, for a possibility for the film and uh, during lunch. And uh, Oh, my God, you're the guy? Yeah, I'm the guy that... Gordon, uh, my favorite film. Yeah, yeah, it's all it's also there in 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 the, in the book, and uh, and uh, uh, Orwood was extremely interested, so he went out to uh, speak with Cabron, and they actually used it in the film. Remember the first part of the film where they awakened the astronauts from what looked like enclosed coffins, mm-hmm. and. Uh, that was supposed to be chronic interment, although it was never made clear in the film. And uh, but of course, chronic interment never really came to be because you could be chronically interred, but as far as I know, no one was ever revived from being in chronic interment. Uh, but that was the theory back in the '60s, and was very well uh, publicized at the time. It just never occurred. But uh, so I. I spent lunch with him, and it was only, uh, oh, maybe two hours. We talked about UFOs and some of the other sightings. But so I was the one that really was responsible for that opening sequence there, and they used it in the film. My God. And Ordway later uh, came back. Uh, Ordway died earlier this year, actually, but he uh, he uh, told me that uh, Kubrick was going to use it in the film. Amazing. 
Yeah, I, 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 I was, of course, very good friends with Arthur Clark, and there was Fred Durant of the Smithsonian. There was Ordway. You know, was, Arthur Clark was was right there on set with Kubrick when they were making the film. Yeah. Did you have a chance to talk to Arthur? No, I didn't. No. Oh, that's no, a shame. No, I never met him or talked with him. Yeah, yeah, I would like to have because he was a great, uh, amazing great guy, sci-fi writer. Yeah, and scientist even. So you're the guy that suggested cryogenic hibernation for long-duration spaceflight in 2001. The things you That's find correct. out on this show. Amazing, Gordon. Congratulations. <laughs> well, if you want, I could read you a little bit about that. Uh... Yeah, by all means. Please, please. Yeah, hang on a second. Let me uh, get it here. Let's see, 97. <laughs> <laughs> you do exactly what I do when I do interviews. I read from my own book. Sometimes, not all Yeah, the time. I know. It's the... Yeah, yeah, my 82-year-old memory just ain't uh, as sharp as a tack like it uh Well, if you spend all that time trying ago. to find the right word, you know, why make it up on the fly when you can just read what you what you wrote? Well, here we go. It says, um, during the spring of 1967, I, refused, I received a call at NICAC headquarters from Dr. Frederick Fred Orway III. He told me he was working with famed space pioneer Werner von Braun at Marshall's at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center. Um, now he said he was the technical advisor with uh, famed director Stanley Kubrick on what was destined to become a groundbreaking film that would redefine Hollywood's conception of science fiction movies, 2001 A Space Odyssey. He was also a friend of Arthur C. Clarke, whose writing inspired the film. And Clark was uh, working with both Kubrick and Ordway on the project. He's, uh, Ordway said that um, told me that he and Kubrick were familiar with the work and books by Kehoe, and asked if I would have lunch with him the following day to discuss the work on the film since Kehoe couldn't. And I quickly agreed, and we met at a restaurant and. Uh, um, uh, Fred Arway told me that Kubrick was a stern taskmaster, <laughs> taskmaster, and put everything he had into his films. He expected those who worked with him to do the same. Ordway told me that he and his family moved to a new, too near the huge studio in England when Kubrick, where Kubrick was filming the movie on a mammoth elaborate set. He, he told me every detail of the movie has to be as near to perfect as it can possibly be. And he said that both Kubrick and Clark had been interested in UFOs and the possibility that some of the reports may constitute alien beings surveying Earth. He added that he and Kubrick had read one or more of Kehoe's books and would like to have met him. I told him Kehoe lived in Array, Virginia, and it was not a regular visit to NICAP headquarters. And then he told me he... Uh, wanted to garner some thoughts about how astronauts could survive years-long journeys to other planets on, or star systems. And I answered that my own theory had to do with the possibility of chronic internment. This was in vogue at the time with experiments in Southern California and elsewhere. In theory, astronauts could be frozen in coffin-like containers and later thawed out and revived when they were nearing a distant planet or, or star system. Uh, and it goes on, but that's the general thing. That's, that's pretty much the basis on uh, uh, the uh, film. 
and the work Kubrick Karkin did on providing an accurate as possible details in the film, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, I thought were far above most other sci-fi films of that or any other era. Oh my gosh, yes. It may still, some may still consider it to be the best uh, such film of, uh, of, of all time. And it, the the, uh, the cinematic epic made its debut in April '68, and now it's you know it's still celebrating its 50th uh, year of release. Yeah, they're going to make a they're going to make play. a big deal, I think, later this fall, um, either in London, yeah, Pinewood. That's what I heard. Yeah, that's what I heard myself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, but actually, when I started my own uh, organization, I. I submitted a couple of reports to Ann Spielberg, uh, Steven Spielberg's sister, when he was working on Close Encounters of the Third Kind in 1967. Hmm. uh, Do you remember the music that came from that, how um, Kubrick on a train editing junked all of his music that he had, quote, planned for the film, and he went to Richard Strauss, and he used things like the Strauss Waltz. In, That's in, right. He even used Johann uh, Strauss's uh, Blue Daniel you mm-hmm. know, at, at, at the very beginning of the film as well. He used a lot of Richard Strauss's uh, and thus fake Zarathustra for the opening and all that. All right, yeah. let me let me give you a postscript. This is really cool because my uh-huh. connection to 2001 is as follows. I of course was friends with Arthur, and when the first Skylab astronaut in orbit made their film of their antics and zero gravity running around in this huge empty, uh, it was an S4B fuel tank that had been converted on the ground at Marshall for all the space station appurtenances with, you know, lockers and food storage and equipment and science gear and all that. And it was a huge volume powered by solar energy, solar panels. And the astronauts took, uh, took film. They didn't have video then. They had 60 millimeter film of them running around in zero gravity to, to create a synthetic gravity as they ran around the circumference. Anyway, I put that soundtrack together with the film at the Hayden Planetarium in New York. This soundtrack, which you're... That's you're, right. That's where Walter Webb was. A, uh, one of yep. our main uh, investigators yep. uh, was an astronomer, yeah. And I sent it, copies of the film, to Arthur Clarke in Sri Lanka, and Stanley Kubrick uh-huh. in England. And this is what I sent. You're on the other side of midnight with my friend and correspondent tonight, Gordon Lore. We're talking about the lore of early UFOs and his connection to 2001.
Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back on the other side of midnight. Could not resist playing that, Arthur. I hope you heard it. And Gordon, what an amazing connection to a film that is destined to go down in history as the classic opening of the real age of space. I mean, an amazing There you connection. go. The great film it was. Roger, did you want me to uh, go a little bit into the Titusville humanoid? Absolutely. Okay. Well, actually, uh, it, it was during the wave of sighting reports in 1967. I got a a call from uh, Clark C. McClellan, who was the chairman of our, our NICAP uh, Florida subcommittee, and he said that around uh, 9 o'clock p.m. on July 20, 1967, uh, his witness, uh, Mrs. Douglas, L., Mrs. Elizabeth L. Douglas, was returning home to her home in Titusville, Florida. 
um, and she, uh, when she got out of her car, uh, started toward her home, she tripped over part of a wide fence that had been scattered on the grass uh, by a neighborhood boy who had mowed her lawn. Um, then she got up. She glanced beyond the tree that she clung onto to get off and was startled to see an oddly designed craft with five square windows or portholes that seemed to be floating very slowly and soundlessly from north to south. The UFO was about 200 feet away and was 67 to 60 to 70 feet high. And uh, she said the ship was an estimated 50 to 60 feet long with a bell-shaped exterior design. She said the width of the object was bigger than the house she saw across the street. As it passed slowly over the street opposite the Douglas home, a strange and frightening form made an appearance through the fourth window. She said, quote, there were also other forms moving about, but I did not notice this as much as the form that was close to the window. I could not tell if this form was trying to look out of the window or he, if he was doing something else. But I did notice that he looked very lean and the arms were very long. I called my daughter to see the object, and Mrs. Douglas uh, told uh, McClellan that the quote, human form appeared to be leaning forward with one or both hands pressing against the transparent glass-like window. She said it may have been looking out of the craft, observing the surrounding terrain. Now uh, Elizabeth was thoroughly frightened. She said the creature had rubbery arms that seemed to be longer than those normally observed on mature men and women. The torso was slim and showed no midsection or chest structure. The head of the entity was egg-shaped, and no facial features such as eyes, nose, mouth, or ears were visual to her. What, were what, what, Gordon, Gordon, what, what, what year was this again? What, what year? I'm sorry? What year was this? Now, this was uh, in July 1967. Oh, my. Okay. In, 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 in Florida, yeah. Now, this is and an era said, when, when, when the reports of people, the reports of beings – were incredibly rare in UFO reporting. They were lights in the sky, nuts and bolts, landings, radioactivity, stuff on the ground. That's right. But Although a lot of them during that year, during the late 60s, were seen. I have a lot of them in my Strange Effects from UFOs book, which was published in 1969, which um, there, there were quite a few of those. But the uh, – uh, I'll go on this issue. She saw the entity for an estimated several minutes. She said, said that not all of the five windows glowed evenly from the intense neon lights. The windows further south was almost dark. The craft appeared to be a dull finished metal with the base and top section being of a darker pigment than the center section. The witness said the lights of the four brighter windows could be seen reflecting on the base of the bell-shaped craft. She called her daughter Ingrid out. They saw it, and uh, then they became frightened. She says the, uh, they observed the object for, oh, about five minutes or more. They scurried back to the office to call the Titusville Police uh, Department. And meanwhile, uh, now, Stephen, now hang on, hang on. For folks who don't know, Titusville is a stone's throw away from Cape Canaveral. Yeah, it's very near there. That's right. And... Uh, 
But, but actually, both Elizabeth and Ingrid Douglas were subjected to numerous questions during several interview sessions with the uh, NICAP uh, McClellan uh, subcommittee. Um, is, uh, McClellan concluded, it's the opinion of this investigative unit that due to the sincerity of each witness, this session should be considered factual as far as personal observation and understanding of the UFO concerned by those involved. This is, there has been no concrete evidence found to prove this case to be a perpetrated hoax. But there were a number of cases like that. Uh, matter of fact, just a few weeks after that, uh, there was uh, an August the 10th, um, they, uh, Richard Malone and his son, um, had a frightening encounter near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. They were heading, they were heading home after spending a couple of hours hunting groundhogs. <laughs> the boy glanced at his watch and saw that there was a, a object that approached Chambersville Road. Uh, the son looked over and they saw a huge object that was almost as big as a reservoir in the area. And the, the UFO was pacing their car just 25 or so feet above the trees, uh, just on the side of the road. And the UFO continued to pace the Malones as he approached Hershey Highway. And then when uh, they crossed over uh, what is known as Swatara Creek Bridge, uh, the object crossed over the highway and was paralleling the other side of the road. When Malone gently applied his brakes and slowed down, the object was then about 75 feet above the uh, the ground, so it was very near. And it continued gliding along with the car down the highway, and then two blocks on the far side of the road, what the locals called Knob Hill, or Hobnob actually, the aircraft stopped and hovered directly over and close to a power line. Then uh, Richard uh, floored the brakes with his foot. He pulled the car to the side of the road and parked. And inside, his son was so shaken by the event that he was crying and trembling. Then they looked up in the sky and saw the object had a diamond shape and looked to be about 75 feet long. The UFO was huge, and there was a white light on the front light and a white light on the rear point. And then uh, as the witnesses decided to exit their car, the object started to move and made a 100-degree turn and headed in the direction of Harrisburg. And they lost sight of it about uh, um, uh, in the vicinity of, of, of Harrisburg, I guess. And then both Richard and his son were very shaken when they arrived home. Okay, and, let, uh, me, let me ask you a question. Um, in that period, 50s, 60s, the time you were at NICAP, how many of the people calling in, which was expensive again in those days, it took a lot of gumption and, and you know background to have a, a you know the wherewithal to make a long distance phone call on the subject of yeah, UFOs? Yeah, it wasn't something right. you, you did lightly. It was it was a major expense to make a long distance phone call. How many of the reports you got involved people, humanoids, beings, and what happened in Nightcap with those reports? Because my memory is that most of the reports from this time period were of lights in the sky, encounters, engines going off, lights going off. In other words, technological things 
but beings, contact with beings, close encounters of the third kind, as Heineck would eventually turn them, were very, very rare. And were they rare in terms of reports, or did you guys edit them out so that they never got reported? Well, uh, a little bit of both, I, I guess. Uh, with, as I say, I started got uh, – I've had a, a lot of those reports in my book, uh, uh, Strange Effects from UFOs, which DICAP published since 69. But at the time, you see, that uh, some of these reports – now, NICAP did a thorough investigation of the Betty and Barney Hill case in September of, of – uh, of um, 1961, uh, no, 61, and then Benjamin Simon hypnotized the patients uh, or the uh, the, the uh, observers, Betty and Barney Hill, and uh, um, they claimed they were abducted on board a flying saucer. And uh, John Fuller, I was on the Joe Franklin show with John Fuller in New York uh, when he explained that case, and I was talking about my first book, Mysteries of the Skies, but that was the first really well-documented case, but Kehoe kind of kept it under wraps and up until 1969 when my book Strange Effects came out. The reason for that was Kehoe, his priority was getting Congress to investigate the case. Okay. And he was afraid that if Congress looked at a bunch of occupant reports that they would think we were kooky and they weren't going to open any congressional investigations on it. But Kehoe managed to get two congressional investigations, one in 66 and one in 68, which I had the most uh, to do with. And uh, Dr. Uh, James McDonald at the time uh, uh, worked with us for a long period of time. He was one of the the, uh, six uh, uh, presenters at the uh, congressional hearings, which was headed by J. Edgar Rouse, Rouse, a congressman from uh, Indiana who uh, uh, also uh, was on our Board of Governors, the NICAP Board of Governors. Mm. uh, Okay, let me stop you there. I have a couple of housekeeping things to do. For one thing, I want everyone to refresh the page. Go to the other side of midnight.com. Click on the gorgeous UFO in front of the Capitol banner with Gordon Lohr's name on it. That will take you to his guest page tonight. Refresh the page. There'll be a bunch of new stuff there, including some of the things you've been talking about. And we're adding another participant to the conversation, our old friend Robert Morningstar, who's been on the show many, many times. Robert is, as you know, a specialist in photo interpretation, geometric analysis, and computer imaging. But what you may not know is he is the current publisher and editor of UFO Digest, Speaking to us from a very noisy Manhattan tonight on Saturday night. Robert, welcome to the other side of midnight. Hello, Richard and uh, Gordon. It's an honor to meet you. Hello. Thank you very much. Same here. Same here. (laughs) Robert, you've been listening for the last uh, couple hours. Uh, Do you have any questions or background or things you want to add to what we've talked about so far? I have some background. Uh, First, I want to say that Donald Kehoe is a hero in the annals of UFO research and history, and I've put two, uh, two sites, two links uh, with videos, the Mike Wallace interview with Donald Kehoe. Oh, that's the CBS interview. Yes, yes, I was trying to remember. Yep. And the one yes. below, you mentioned Dewey Fournay, and you didn't mention Edward Ruppelt and uh, um, <clears throat> others, but in the second link, 
It's called UFOs, The True Story of Flying Saucers. 1956 uh-huh. documentary, which was the, um, actually it was a co-production of the U.S. Air Force, co- coordinated, cooperated with this production. And you actually have Edward Rupel, Captain Ruppelt of Project Blue Book and Dewey Fournay and uh, the, right. the two gentlemen took the films in Utah and Montana in the 1950s. So that's a real treat if you want to get the flavor of what it was like when they flew over the Washington uh, area and over the White House. There's a dramatic reenactment of the radar, the radar scene where the yeah. air traffic controllers are tracking the, the radar. It's, it's a fantastic scene. The, the other thing I wanted to say is the Air Force had a habit of saying that pilots who chased UFOs were chasing the belt stars of Orion <laughs> or the planet Venus in the case of uh, Mantell and in the case of the Gorman dogfight which took place in October, October 23rd 1948, 20 minute dogfight over North Dakota between a P-51 chasing a small UFO that did 180 degrees turns, came back directly at him and when they were going to crash did a vertical climb it's an amazing um, incident. But they said that he, he was actually chasing the uh, planet Jupiter. And all of the relative motions of, of the UFO relative to this plane were his own. So they always had these, uh, pardon the expression, lame excuses. <laughs> but they were in 1948. Jupiter. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, indeed. So, um, yeah, how, how could you even see it? <laughs> I wanted to ask you, on a psychological level, you saw three, uh, I counted a, at least three incidents that you had in the 1950s and early 50s. So much luckier than me. I've never seen anything right. like that, and Gordon got to see three of them. Uh-huh. I've had about five of them, and uh, that's why I became a pilot, because I knew that if you're a pilot, you're more likely to have an airborne encounter. But I wanted to ask you about psychology, your own mindset. You knew in your heart of hearts with your own these things were real. How did you feel? Um, did you feel that you had to lay low? And was there a time when the attitude changed from being able to be open and uh, frank about your experiences where you, where the government attitude changed and you had Great to Great question. Great question. Or circumspect? When the government's That's- attitude changed? No, I, I don't think there, there really was. I, I, I think it was, it may have changed, you know, with with the uh, the uh, current ATTIP program now from out of the Pentagon with Bigelow. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, Bigelow claimed he set up a bunch of uh, storage bins in uh, Las Vegas to uh, house um, um, parts, parts, machinery, and objects that were picked up. Yeah. No, I meant right. I meant actually in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s that er- that early period. When right. it was not as, when it was more, and the word really is, it was more occult. UFOs were more occulted by the government. They were hidden. And I'm happy to say that um, with the disclosure of December 2017, it is time to get rid of the deep state because we don't need it anymore. The purpose of establishing yeah. M12 yeah. Yeah. in the deep state was to keep the lid on the UFO and the alien presence. So I keep emphasizing Let's make President Kennedy's last wish come true and destroy the deep state. Yep. Honestly. Yep. Yep. Uh, but how about that, the psychological part of, uh, of being a knower 
a savant and having all of these people ridiculing. Well, let me let me let me phrase the question this way, Robert. Um, Gordon, you had mm-hmm. you had NICAP offices there in the heart of the belly of the beast in Washington D.C., the nation's capital. That's how correct, many yeah. how many military and intelligence guys came to the office and talked to Kehoe and talked to Hall and kind of made known their interest in this subject? Not many. Uh, actually, there were a few that came in. I know uh, even before I got there, there were two CIA guys came in and persuaded Richard Hall to uh, let them examine some reports. No, wait, wait. Did, did they enter with credentials and say, we're from the CIA, can we look at your files? That, that, that's, that's correct. They did. They did. And, and remember that Kehoe was very friendly with a lot of these people. Matter of fact, Roscoe Hillenkoiter, the first director of CIA, um, he was very, he was close friends with Hillenkoiter at the Naval Academy. They both graduated from there in 1920. And uh, Kehoe appointed him the, uh, the uh, chairman of the NICAP Board of Governors until uh, Hillenkoiter got a little with Kehoe because he kept uh, um, degrading the Pentagon and the Air Force and whatnot. And so uh, Helen Carter finally resigned from the board. But uh, you mean was, uh, you mean when they came out with BS stories like the, the Belt Stars of Orion for the Killian case, that's right. Kehoe yeah. would say that's, and, and, that's BS. And they actually planted a, a, a CIA operative on the staff at NICAP. I tried to persuade Kehoe and Hall that uh, we were in danger of being taken over by the CIA, but for some reason they didn't want to believe it. Now, wait, 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 wait. How did you know there was a CIA gate placed on the staff? Over His your- name was Stuart Nixon. He was placed on the staff, uh, uh, and uh, he was a cocky young guy, and he, the first week he was there in 1967, he says, Gordon, I'm here to help you guys through the rough times and to point you in a new direction. And I asked him, what are you talking about, Stuart? Hmm. And then he clammed up. He wouldn't say anything more. And I asked Kehoe that I thought we may have a NICAP plant, and Kehoe wasn't buying it. He says, no, I don't think so. He's too dumb for that. <laughs> I said, well, don't you think a, a CIA agent could act dumb so he could get into your, after your conference? But uh, for some reason, he, he just didn't believe it. And but it's well known now that Nixon was a CIA operative, as was Joseph Bryan, the head of NICAP's Board of Governors. Admiral Hillenkoiter was the first director of the CIA. So Kehoe advertently or inadvertently planted CIA agents on the, in the NICAP scheme of things right off the bat. So why he didn't believe that uh, there was something going on there. It's beyond me to this day. <laughs> but as you say, Kehoe was the man that started it all, and he deserves a great deal of credit for bringing this whole thing to the public fore in the first place. You would wonder, a guy yeah, with his military – sorry, Robert. You would wonder, with a guy with his military okay. background, why he was not more kind of on the edge of it, realizing that this had huge national security implications – and of course, the CIA would try to do something if there was information they didn't want out generally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. You know, it's uh, he had he certainly had CIA connections, and 
a, a number of reports from people like Dewey Fournay and whatnot. I, I spent hours talking with Dewey Fournay in an attempt to save NICAP back in 1969, um, almost nightly there for a while. And, uh, um, but I, I have no doubt it, that it was a CIA takeover. And then Jack Acuff came in and ran the place for several years after that. But he disbanded all the NICAP subcommittees and it went downhill after that. But, um, so, but the thing is, uh, I'll tell you something. I don't care if it gets out there or not, but we were so, uh, certain members of the NICAP staff, they call myself and I and others on the staff, uh, were figuring that NICAP was about to go under. So we made uh, copies. We wore the Xerox machine oh out of copies, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reports. And that's how I came to write my latest book. You know, it's a 460-page uh, book. So you made that I wrote about that's right. So I, we made backups. We even got uh, original uh, prints. Some well, Akio even gave me an original letter, which I have framed and sitting on my desk from Carl Jung, who wrote his own book on UFOs, and he had a correspondence with Kehoe. He wrote several lengthy letters. This one was written on October 13, 1958, which he says, my experience with APRO Aerial Phenomena Research Organizations shows me I must be careful in getting mixed up with UFO organizations. Although I was vividly interested in these questions, I prefer to detach my name from organizations of this kind. This does not mean, however, that I am not perfectly willing to contribute whatever I can to the research such organizations are concerned with. If I'm able to help in the psychological matters, I'm glad to do so but I prefer it in an unofficial way. And uh, signed by Carl Jung himself. When uh, NICAP was closing, I found a letter uh, signed with uh, C.J. Jung, and I asked him if I wanted to send it to him, and Kehoe said, no, you keep it if you want it. And so I have it now to this day, <laughs> more than uh, 50 years later. Hmm. Well, we only have a couple of minutes at the bottom of the hour. Robert, did you have something you wanted to start with, and we can bring it up on the yeah, other side? Yeah, I wanted to ask. I wanted to ask uh, how early in how early in the 1950s did NICAP learn that aliens were having interactions with humans and, and abducting some of them? I and, don't know that uh, too much about that because I didn't join the staff until '65. Uh, and the, when did you I first learn about? What was your first? Well, case? I first learned about it from the uh, Betty and Barney Hill case. They had a huge file on it that right. took place in September second, I think, in 1961 in New Hampshire, right. where Betty and Barney were apparently abducted on board this spacecraft, and then right. they were. That's one of Fuller's uh, best books, The Interrupted Journey. That's right, The Interrupted Journey. I was on the Joe Franklin show in New York with Fuller at the time, and Simon Oakland, the actor who played in Psycho and... Uh, um, oh, yeah, famous actor. Yeah, the famous okay. actor. And he demanded to be on the show at the same time. He was supposed to have his own seg a segment. And he he told Joe, well, if I can't be on the, the show uh, with, with, with these guys, I'm walking out. <laughs> so uh, Joe Franklin <laughs> decided he was going to be on the show. 
So mm-hmm. he was very interested in the Betty and Barney Hill case. And uh, right. John Fuller wrote the book, The Interrupted Journey, two hours on board a flying saucer. Okay, holy guys, Thank we're at the bottom of the hour. I don't want to eclipse this. I'm going to do something very special here. For the idea that the PSYOPs program of the CIA and the government changed on UFOs and it became kind of dismissed and discredited and laughed, this is one of the songs from the period. See if you remember ever hearing it. We shall return. Coming out of the sky, I had a one long horn and one big eye. I commit the chicken and I said, ooh, it looked like a purple people eater to me. It was a one eyed, one horn flying purple people eater. One eyed, one horn flying purple people eater. One eyed, one horn flying purple people eater. It still looked strange to me. And then he came down to earth and he lit in the tree. I said, Mr. Purple People Eater, don't eat me. I heard him say, and I voice took her up. I want to eat you, so I ran so fast. It was a the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, 
and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward, and boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Welcome back to the other side of midnight on this Saturday night. <clears throat> we have a gorgeous opportunity here. Anyone who wants to talk with Gordon, Gordon Lore, and get firsthand what it was like to investigate this absolutely astonishing field, which still has no resolution. You know, there's New York Times stories, there's network promos, there's, you know, Travel Channel and, and all the other uh, networks that are covering this, but there really is no resolution after over 70 years. What is flying around in the skies? Why does the government not want us to know? How did the deep state form, borrowing from Robert's very appropriate connection there, because that's, that's really how the deep state was created, just suppress this knowledge and this information. So if you want to talk to us, if you want to call us here, let me give you the numbers, okay? 917-889-8802. 917-889-8802. That's your direct connection to Gordon tonight, Gordon Moore. He can tell you what it was like from being there firsthand. And I want Gordon to go now to a kind of a, a part of the conversation where I talk about the segue. When you realized that the CIA or the government or some higher level people were really quietly strangling nightcap how did you and the other staff members plan to make the transition and how did you set up your own citizen science-based non-governmental organization to carry on the work of nightcap as it was quietly being killed well i don't know how i can top the purple people later but uh, (laughs) (laughs) actually uh when i uh uh, when Kehoe and I were uh, let go of NICAP and NICAP started to go under, I had all this information and I decided to start my own organization, uh, um, uh, UFO Research Associates, U4, I called it. And I had contact with people like Paul Cerny and, uh, and um, uh, Jan Aldridge and Barry Greenwood and uh, Fran Ridge, who runs the NICAP website. And so I, I called upon some of them, particularly Paul Cerny. He was a big help. I think Paul is now deceased, but uh, he was the head of our California subcommittee at the time. And he shared with me a bunch of reports that I 
uh, had in my uh, in, in, in my uh, section on uh, UFO research associates and uh, Paul sent me a whole bunch of reports one of them was particularly uh, interesting to me was one that uh, occurred on September 10 1977 uh, Bill Petra was a heavy machine mechanic and he was known as a husky, healthy, fearless individual who possessed a keen mind and photographic memory. He also had perfect eyesight. But uh, but on on the, that early morning, like 12:45 a.m., he was watching an early morning TV movie. Then he reached for a drink. The TV set and his hair conditioning suddenly went dead. His air conditioning suddenly went dead. He figured a circuit breaker had probably kicked out. He went outside to check. As he turned the corner of his home, he became increasingly aware of static electricity effect on his body. He was horripilating. His head, hair also audibly appeared to sling off crackling sparks that danced around in the areas of uh, in the air of his home. As he looked up to the clear full moon, he was startled to see a huge circular UFO that was hovering about 50 feet over the barn in one corner of his home. He watched in stunned amazement for about an estimated 15 minutes. And then he said the diameter of the object he thought was about 150 feet. And the dome of the UFO, what appeared to be vertical rib sections, there were concave surfaces between each section. The gray dome had a slight peak or point. And... Um, he said, the more I looked, the more details I was picking up on. He said, as soon as he stepped outside his house, the strange craft began moving over the field behind his home. The UFO's, UFO's appendages were immediately retracted into the bottom. Then two fierce-looking claw-like hook arms on the bottom were also retracted. As this was happening, a small door opened on each side just above his arms and protruded out and downward. As a matter of fact, I have this illustration in the, uh, the flying saucer from the Earth, the Earth thing that you have up on your website here, and uh, I have an actual sketch of that that craft, um, which uh, is right below the uh, uh, Stanton Friedman thing here. And Bill, yeah, Patton I think it's number UFO. twelve. Number twelve, you've got it. Yeah. And that's quite a quite a looking craft. And then he suddenly spotted two two more similar objects that were an estimated 70 feet in diameter, hovering over the 500 mil 500,000 volt power lines that were a couple of hundred yards behind his neighbor Davis's airfield. These objects were constructed like a larger UFO and had two smaller lights on each side with blue lights coming out of them, and each of the little ones was shining a blue light on the metal towers near them, and the entire towers were glowing blue. Inside these shafts of blue light was a darker, jerky stream of blue light that seemed to be flowing toward the UFOs as if they were drawing electricity from the wires. Oh, my God. Two crafts seemed to be almost resting on the lines, each one between two power poles. Then suddenly, with sparks flying, a power blackout of the surrounding area occurred. Uh, Bill made a beeline for 
his home yelling for his wife, Linda, Linda, get the hell out here. No, you got to see this. No, stay inside. <laughs> and he crashed through the doorway of his blacked out mobile home, ran to the back window and peered outside. You could see the large, the UFO was now hovering over Davis's home with its large bottom light illuminating the area. Linda Pesher ran to her husband, grabbed his arm. Then they w watched as the mysterious object suddenly shot off at an incredible speed toward the foothills about 20 miles away. Bill reported that the aerial, aerial craft covered this distance on only two to three seconds while it illuminated the tops of the hills for a second or two. Then it quickly reversed and at an incredible speed sped back to hover once more over Davis's home while simultaneously lighting up the area. It also caused his dogs to react. They were howling and barking in an unusual manner. And uh, from, he said everywhere around the immediate countryside, all the lights were turned off, were off, ranch yard lights, and the whole town was in darkness, except for the moonlight in the UFO. Uh, that was a report from Newfound Western States Director at the time, Paul Cerny, who led the investigation and sent a report to me. And what what, what now, year was this again? This was uh, 1967. It was uh, no 1966. It was September the 10th, 1970. Wow. Oh, I'm sorry, 1976. Okay. It was outside his home in Calusa. California, 1976. Gordon, with all of these reports, with average people, ordinary citizens, intelligent, you know, real people sending thousands of letters and reports and all this, what do you think is the impediment that we still don't generally acknowledge? I mean, those Gallup polls and people believe, but it, it's not it's not front and center. We're not realizing that we're somehow at the nexus of an interplanetary or interstellar you know, con confluence of people out there interacting with people here. How come it's really made no real progress in like 70 years? Well, that's a good question. I think because possibly because the government had tried to cover it up for so long. They're finally beginning to come out with this new program, AT&T IT program, aerial threat identification program or something like that, which, uh, um, you know, think and, of and the name. Is, I mean, the name itself tells yeah. you what they think, aerial threat. That's right, exactly. Uh, that, that's what I'm thinking. But uh, the thing is, I, I don't think they really believe that. I have a theory. Really? Really? You, you, you don't think that's their mindset? Kind of, yeah, I think that we've been in contact with possibly alien beings for a long time, and we've been benefiting from their technology as perhaps they have from ours as well. But we've kept it undercover all this time. But I think that, uh, you know, with this new program, there may be some hope that uh, some more will come out of it. I don't know. It may be another Condon committee type of thing mm. where uh, nothing, where their conclusions are that there's nothing out there to be concerned about or, uh, that they're not aliens from space. We've got about 15 opinion. minutes. I'm sorry, Gordon. We don't have a lot of time. I want to make sure we get in this subject. Talk about sure. James. Talk about James McDonald, because James McDonald went from this incredible independent scientist at the University of Arizona 
to someone who on the verge of success politically, getting the Congress to pay attention, getting scientists to pay attention, he mysteriously, quote, committed suicide in the Arizona deserts outside of Phoenix. Talk about James That's McDonald, right. the James McDonald that you knew and that I was very fortunate to meet that evening on, on George Early's couch. Yeah, well, as I say, uh, Dick Hall and uh, James McDonald and I were close friends. And uh matter of fact, James McDonald spent uh, many a night at the home of my wife and I in Bethesda, Maryland. Dick would come over and we'd talk to the wee hours of the morning. And the last time we saw him was about uh, a month, maybe two months, April or May of 1971. And uh, he was ready, he said, to begin writing his own book on the subject. Mm. And then uh, um, he talked for hours about some of the reports and how he was going to uh, begin writing the book. And uh, so at the time, I think he was in town to uh, uh, for a congressional subcommittee on the, uh, the uh, Concord uh, he was against Concord flights because they were kind of destroying the atmosphere. And uh, well, his professional uh, background—he was a physicist and a meteorologist, and that that's was right. He was a—he was the—he was the head of the atmospheric physics department at the University of Arizona, and uh, he was instrumental in getting a, a lot of organizations, the uh, AIAA, the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, to delve into the subject. Even he got the United Nations to take a peek at it. And uh, But the, the thing is, what, what really concerned us was that a month after he returned home, uh, he was found dead in the desert. Now, Ann Droffel points out in her book that he did suffer from uh, depression over the years, and that may have been the result of it. But she also points out, as James McDonald told us, um, a month or maybe two months before his death, that he had been um, followed by mysterious black vans through the streets of uh, of Phoenix, Arizona, mm. and also that on at least one occasion, maybe two occasions, his uh, briefcase uh, on board a plane where he set down his briefcase beside his seat and then somebody traded that briefcase for one that looked exactly like it that was empty. Oh, so a lot wow. of his original reports were stolen and never seen again. Oh, my God. But it puzzled me and Dick Hall, too, that uh, why only a month after – and he seemed to be in good spirits. He didn't seem to be suffering from depression or anything. We had no idea that he was suffering from depression until uh, – actually, Ann Druffel wrote her excellent book, uh, Firestorm. Uh, Dr. James E. McDonald's fight for UFO science. And uh, um, so we were really concerned about that. And when we heard about it, we were just sick. I mean, it was just a, a very sad time for us because he was such a close friend. And he was all ready to begin his own UFO book, which I think would have added a lot to... Uh, oh, it would have been incredible. I, and if, if his influence reached through the Congress and through the UN to look at the SST problems... If he'd written a book, a major science-based book on ufology, it would have been paid attention to by, as we used to term them, opinion makers around the world. 
and maybe somebody could not countenance that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's sort of what I, I was thinking as well. Robert, uh, let me bring you back in here. What are your thoughts on McDonald? Did I lose Robert? Oh, it looks like I've lost uh, Robert. There you go. Ask if uh, whether he whether or not he thought that uh, he had been um, murdered. Um, that was, you asked my question and, and uh, Gordon said, but I'd like to take this opportunity to break a huge story. And this, because you mentioned uh, Stuart Nixon and uh-huh. it uh, sparked uh, a recollection and it's a very short term memory recollection. Three weeks ago, I interviewed the lawyer for E. Howard Hunt, who was a CIA uh-huh. agent involved in the JFK assassination, self-confessed exactly. on his deathbed. And he involved in Watergate break-in. And the week after that, I interviewed Robert Merritt, who's the author of Watergate Exposed. And he was Nixon's personal courier, personal uh, spy. And Wait, but when you say Nixon, personal, you, mean, you mean Richard Nixon. Richard, Richard Nixon, right. not Stuart Nixon. So Robert Merritt was his, also his, his uh, personal assassin for the CIA and the FBI. And he's confessed everything in Watergate Exposed. First assassin, wow. <laughs> However, yes. what he revealed on my program, both of them revealed on my program, is that the UFO issue was the the, uh, the critical issue in the JFK assassination. And it was also wow. the critical issue in the bloodless assassination of Richard Nixon, which was what Watergate was. It was a CIA trap to remove him from office because he intended as well to uh, bring the UFO issue forward. And wow, Nixon, Nixon knowing, yes, Nixon, Nixon was really the head of the, um, the UFO Bureau in the Eisenhower administration. But the point is, Nixon wrote a... Yeah, you're, you're breaking up, Robert. Your Skype is terrible yeah, yeah, for a yeah. future... I, I'm sorry that uh, it may be interference, but Nixon wrote a secret file. He made three copies. Uh, two he had secreted. One in the White House library in a secret book, a special book, and one in the uh, National Archives. And one copy was sent to Henry Kissinger via this courier, Robert Merritt. He told Merritt that he trusted him because he'd always done his job and better than any CIA or FBI agent could ever have done it. And he asked him to hold the secret of the UFO file and its location until 2018 or until a president that he trusted sat in the White House. Uh Last year, I did two interviews with Robert Merritt, and he didn't mention a word of it. And when I spoke to him, he said, Mr. Morningstar, I promised President Nixon that I would not reveal it until 2018 or when and when the right president was there. And 2018 came, and, and this was the right president. So he did an interview with Daniel List, the dark journalist, in January, and he told the story. Daniel List called the Secret Service. They called the CIA. All went to the house. I believe this was now uh, by April because the interview was uh, early in the year. It took a while to get this. So they went there and the president found out that the CIA was in the building and in the hubbub happened. He went down to the library and they found the book. It was hidden in a volume called American History Volume 2. 
Huh. And it purportedly contained secret formula that Nixon said they had received from the extraterrestrial presence and that it was something that was going to change the world forever and turn mankind into something like a godlike being. There you go. The president yeah. arrived as they found it. He, he grabbed it. The president grabbed it. He started, started to look through it. The CIA asserted itself, said, sir, you can't hold on to that. And after looking at it, he handed it back to them. They took it away. But you can rest assured. No, wait, wait, wait. Richard Nixon voluntarily gave up the secrets to mankind to the CIA who worked for him? No, no, no. To hide them from the CIA. He hid them for for all those years. He hid them until the right president was in the White House. And he also figured that 2018, that was his target date for whatever reason he chose. So I'm totally confused. Are you saying that Trump found this book? They found it, and Trump was Who? there when they found it. Okay. So why did Trump, and, and, and as he, president, he grabbed it. why did he give it back to them? It was a letter to the world. It was a letter to the next president. The next, well, because they asserted uh, national security. Yeah, but under the and, Constitution, uh, he's the chief. Wait, 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 wait. Under the Constitution, he's, he's the chief guy. No one's higher than right. him. Hey, well, have you seen how he's behaved recently? He's been going by the protocols, and you can rest assured that not Mike really. He has popular. he has yeah. waves. All right, it comes. That was and goes. when Mike Pompeo was. That was when Mike Pompeo was in in charge of the CIA, by the way, before Secretary of State. So anyway, that, those stories are to be found in the two biographies that these men have written. So wait a minute. If we want people on Twitter to ask this candy. president, where the hell is this book? We need the exact title, et cetera. Where can people get information, background to read on this book? The Nixon you West. You can read it in being Thomas Caddy's book, Being There, Eyewitness to History, C-A-D-D-Y, Douglas Caddy. And, uh, and Mr. Uh, Merritt did not include it in his book, Watergate Exposed, but that tells the real, real story of Watergate and what it was all about. Hmm. It was something, it was a setup. It was a setup by the CIA to um, to smear Nixon and to remove him from office because oh here is it I forgot the reason Nixon wanted to to bring this new geopolitical framework into existence the overture to China and the strategic arms limitation and treaty with Russia right that was what drove the CIA crazy he was changing the global dynamic. And the reason Nixon gave was that he felt Russia and China as allies against the alien presence. Which is the same conversation that, that Gorbachev and Reagan had a couple of decades later. Right. And Reagan said it is not an alien presence already here on the planet that we call war. And he was insinuating that something else is causing wars if you get what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's already an alien force on this planet. Is there not already an alien force on this planet? Okay, Gordon, I'm war? sorry to cut you off, Robert, but we only have four minutes. I want, Rob, sure. I want Gordon to really, really plug his book. It's an incredibly sure. important book. Okay. People like uh, Lindy Powell, who was author of The Disclosure Man, which is a forthcoming biography of Donald Kehoe, says about Gordon's book, mm-hmm. This valuable addition to the canon of UFO works is told from the author's unique perspective 
as a key member of NICAP during its most successful years and its controversial closure. Replete with insights and accounts of a vast number of important cases, this book should be on the shelves of all serious researchers. Gordon, plug your book. Okay, yes, well, it's it's available. It, it, people can get it from me, an autographed copy. I can send to people. And We have a link on the other have, side of Midnight on your page, so they can go get it by exactly, going there. Exactly, yeah, you, you do. It can also be gotten from my publisher at www.bearmannermedia.com, Bear Manor Media. It can be gotten through Amazon and Barnes & Noble and a few other outlets out there. Uh, but it's getting some very good buzz, and uh, so uh, you know, it's, 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 it was a labor of love. I've spent uh, some time doing this. I was fortunate enough to have a lot of the NICAP and U4 files still in my in my file cabinet. Well, your your Xeroxing oh, campaign with the transition was incredibly for for thoughtful. I know. It, it was very important. We got a lot of basic information there, uh, you know, it, it was spread around to various people, but I think I may have gotten the most of it. Dick Hall got some of it. Um, we knew in about the last six months that NICAP was going under. We didn't know that it was, whether it was the, the, the CIA or that, uh, um, or it was because Kehoe, like Townsend Brown before him, wasn't great at uh, keeping records. Um, so uh, our funding began to dry up. The people that were supporting us with large donations, like $10,000 and so on, um, were getting discouraged. And it was really the Condon Report that put the final bullet in my cap's forehead, I think. Mm. Well, gentlemen... Unfortunately, our show has come to an end. Gordon Orr, I want to thank you so much for a riveting three hours. If you want nostalgia, well, you so if you want to find out how it all began and how it's evolved to where Gordon's opinion, I guess, it might be a breakthrough point, read Gordon's book. Well, so thank until, you very much. So until tomorrow night, same time, same bad channel. Third star the left. Wait on till morning. Night, everyone. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.